following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener, Game of Thrones, Ted Lasso, The Flintstones, Young Frankenstein, Andor, The Book of Boa Fett, Solo, A Star Wars Story, The Clone Wars, Rebels, WandaVision, Doctor Strange, and the Multiverse of Madness, Arrested Development, Rocky, Predator, and Happy Gilmore. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie or a TV show and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots, dinosaurs, or uh, tiny little beard-faced creatures that fix droids. Uh, I'm your host, Luigi, and with me as always is my co-host. This week we've got a returning co-host, Evan Norris. Welcome back to the show, Evan. Thank you so much. I had a blast last time when we reviewed the infamous B-movie, Battle Beyond the Stars, and I am so pumped to be talking about a show that has meant so much to me, and I'm sure you, over the past few years. And uh, why don't you tell the listeners what show that is? That show is da, 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 The Mandalorian, which to da, me... Na, 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 <laughs> the, oh, the music. The <laughs> musical stings and the musical theme of that show are are just spectacular. So much about the show is spectacular. And to me, The Mandalorian has been probably my favorite thing about Star Wars since the original trilogy. It's really been transcended for me. And uh, and Lou and I both share a love for Star Wars and this show. But I think we differ a bit on this season in particular. So I'm excited to get into it. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, So listeners, just uh, so you know, we are going to be covering the entire third season of The Mandalorian. Um, You might be asking, you might be like checking your podcast feed and wondering where's uh, their coverage of season one and two. We didn't do it. Um, (laughs) That's because this is an independent podcast. Uh, So I, you know, um, talk about the things I want to talk about. And I really wanted to talk about uh, The Mandalorian season three. Um, I, if, if this does well, if we get some like listener feedback and, uh, whatnot, maybe we will go back and, and review the whole series. But, um, but season three is, is a, is a fine starting point. I think, um, we can kind of talk about the whole series up to, up to now, along with like some of the stuff from book, book of Boba Fett. Um, but the way we're going to be doing, approaching this is, uh, this episode you're listening to right now, we're going to be talking about season three, episodes one through three, or chapters 17, 18, and 19. And then uh, on the following episode, we're going to do episodes four through six of season three. And then we're going to do the two-part finale um, as a final episode. So make sure you are subscribed. Make sure you leave a, a review and rate us uh, five stars. And just keep downloading these episodes when we release them. Um, okay. So to kick things off, uh, The Mandalorian, just let's talk about it kind of broadly to start. Um, sure. You and I both watched the, we went back and watched the pilot to uh, kind of look for any any seeds that they planted and any sort of groundwork that they, they laid that paid off this season. Um, and I think we both found some interesting things. Um in general, I think it, it, it's worth saying that uh, this entire project is headed up by uh, Dave Filoni and John Favreau. 
who have a lot of established Star Wars cred. Um, they may, they're very largely responsible for the Clone Wars cartoon, uh, which I love. I, I think is, is, um, did a lot for Star Wars in general. Um, what are your, what are your feelings about the Clone Wars cartoon? So I actually, my wife Beth and I have been, um, kind of restarted it because I watched the first season when it first aired and then fell kind of fell away from it after watching the Mandalorian the book of Boba Fett and seeing a lot of these characters you know you know who it was it was in the book of Boba Fett um and you'll you remind me of the bounty hunter's name uh, a character you love who is reintroduced in book of Boba Fett um you weren't happy with the resolution of his character the Duro um mm-hmm. uh, Fennec Shand. Oh, oh, you're talking about um, uh, Cat Bane. Yes, I know you love him. And I remember, so he was reintroduced in the book of Boba Fett, which we could have a whole separate podcast episode for that, because I know you have a lot of strong <laughs> feelings about that show. But he was reintroduced, and I turned to Beth, my wife, and said, oh, because I remembered him distinctly from the finale of season one of The Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? Let's. We never watched it. Let's watch it. So we've been uh, rewatching season one and i know this stuff gets much better in later seasons season one kind of there's a lot of filler in season one you know a lot of the episodes um are interesting but they don't go anywhere they're kind of there and then they evaporate there is one episode in season one that i really loved it was when a jedi contingent infiltrates perhaps unknowingly the temple or the hidden base of general grievous mm. i think kit fisto is leading that kit fisto is just one of the best supporting jedi characters and he, his mm. padawan who's a mon calamari that episode really sang to me i loved that one it was just a little darker and had re- real ramifications but uh and i know i'm going off on a tangent here but in general i don't have as much experience with the clone wars or filoni as you do Cad Bane is incredible. Actually, we're switching gears, and this is now the Cad Bane podcast. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> uh, I could I could talk about Cad Bane forever. He is he's just such a great character, um, and he's just one of many examples of like characters that were introduced during that uh, era of Star Wars um, uh, media. Um, he's just, he's just great. He like he can. There's a fight. I don't know if you've gotten to this episode. It's I think I think you have, and it's one of the later seasons. But he has a fight, uh, a one-on-one against Obi Wan, and he does surprisingly well against, in my opinion, the the best Jedi of of all of the Jedi. Um, and yeah, he's just incredible. Um, Book of Boba Fett. What something that that's that uh, is really jarring, I think, about the way that they're organizing this era of star wars this post uh i'll call it the post sequel trilogy era um is like when when i was when i was rewatching episode uh episode one of this season uh chapter 17 the apostate the previously on included very very vital scenes from book of boba fett yeah so if you had missed those episodes you have no idea, uh, not no idea, but there's like some catching up that is, um, I don't know the right word for it, but it's not, I don't think it's great. I don't, <laughs> I don't love the decision that I have to watch Book of Boba Fett. I'm going to, I'm that kind of fan. I'm going to watch everything they put out, but I, I just, it rubs me the wrong way that I have to watch uh, those episodes of Book of Boba Fett 
to get the complete picture of this totally separate show. What do you think? I think that is a totally fair point. This, and this ties us back to your intro about Filoni and Favreau, this season in general felt more like tying together all these different canvases and really being... Season three of The Mandalorian feels like an attempt to be more connective tissue between the past, present, and future, Mm -hmm. which is interesting, which I think feeds into Disney and Marvel's MO, which is this world building, which is this, even if you didn't catch this one, this, you know, if you didn't watch Doctor Strange or if you didn't watch Ant-Man, but you're watching this Avengers sequel, you kind of know through the the ether of the pop culture, who these characters are, and they all feed into each other and you want to keep following them. So I think Star Wars and The Mandalorian is leaning into that. As a result, you kind of need to watch Book of Boba Fett to Mm -hmm. understand the trajectory of this season, which is great for completionists like you and me, not so great for the more casual fan. And I'll also say this, this is something that kind of bummed me out the most about this season in general. And I won't go too far beyond season three because I know we've got a lot of, there's a lot of meat to, to jump into in, in later episodes in this season. But part of what made me fall in love with Mandalorian, and it, it, this watching, re-watching the pilot reminded me of this, is its distance from the established Star Wars canon. Like, yeah. I love Star Wars. I, I consumed the, the expanded universe media as a teenager voraciously. We were talking via text the other day about the truce at Bakura, Highly recommend that to anyone interested in the now decanonized expanded universe. But the Truce Legends. of Bakura is a great novel. Um, but I was kind of this was this was after the prequels and after a lot of the spin-off movies and and even the sequel trilogy. I wanted distance from the Skywalkers, the Solos, the Palpatines. I wanted a different story in a different setting. And the Mandalorian gave us that. It was a space western with this anti-hero certainly at first you know in that first scene in the pilot episode mando just kills two guys without flinching and uh and uh half of the door man that is that's an intense (laughs) scene um i could watch that pilot again and again just a great episode Mm -hmm. but um and again i'm i'm going off on too many tangents here but i would say yes season three more of a connective tissue approach which uh and I feel like I, it's funny. I went back and did some research ahead of this, this podcast episode because I thought, is Filoni taking over more of a role? Because we see more of the characters that he managed in the Clone Wars, mm-hmm. and we see more of that, more of that expanded universe um, world building. But no, Favreau is still the showrunner. He still wrote every episode with some guest writers helping him out with a couple episodes, including Filoni. But this is very much Favreau's baby. And Favreau, to me, is the architect of this. He is the man who invented Baby Yoda slash the child slash Grogu slash Din Grogu. And for that, he will always be. I mean, he should have his his uh, a statue built for him outside of <laughs> you know, Lucasfilm or whatever. He has done so much. So, yeah, I would say that this... This season has felt a little different in that it's not so much standalone. It's more part of this tapestry of Star Wars. Tapestry is a really good word. Um, he, the, the, what, what Filoni has really done well is like two major things with Star Wars. One, with the Clone Wars cartoon, he, he stitched together the gaps between especially episodes two and three um, that 
are the biggest things that fans complained about when we when we got those movies was like we thought the entire prequel trilogy was going to be watching Anakin's gradual descent to the dark side but it was really like a lot of build up to that and then they kind of skipped over the most important part and then just hand waved oh yeah no he's he's evil now um <laughs> oh yeah and, we, yeah. and so like so the Clone Wars cartoon I mean this isn't a, really a spoiler but it it follows uh, Ahsoka Tano like his apprentice um and and her kind of arc with him and their dynamic really um you'll you'll see why like over the seasons as you're watching it but their dynamic is really the thing that pushed Anakin over the edge uh in terms of like not trusting the Jedi order anymore and trusting more in Palpatine who's obviously not have not has his best interest in mind but um you know it, it's it really like fills in the gaps of like what made this kid so blind to this obvious villain that's manipulating him and stuff like that um but also the other thing is now it's so uh, like he's doing he's doing the same thing with the sequel trilogy like all of those you know somehow palpatine has has returned dave filoni is answering that question of what does the word somehow mean in that sentence <laughs> yes um and that's revealed you know spoil obviously there'll be spoilers for the whole season and previous seasons and all things star wars but that whole shadow council at the end of this season is kind of, mm-hmm. I think that you, I think that's Favreau and Filoni trying to bridge that gap between the rise of the new Republic and the rise of the first order. The mm-hmm. first order of which is also kind of inexplicable. I have a lot of thoughts about the first order, which I'm hopefully we'll get to in later episodes, but uh, yeah, I think you were right on the money there. They're filling those gaps. Yeah. Um, the, both the first order and like the new Republic. Uh, this season really explores the 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 origin of the two and how like how how did it somehow come back? How did that possibly happen? How did we allow this to happen again? And honestly, I think they did a really good. We'll talk about it when we get to later episodes because those really uh, lean into the politics of all of that stuff. Um, but they really, I think, I feel like they really did a great job of, um, of this season of the show of setting that up and making it clear that like, it's not just, Oh, we needed it to happen because we wanted another movie with stormtroopers and star destroyers. Um, there's a reason for all of that to, to return. Um, the other, so the other thing that Filoni has done so well is create new, uh, lore and new pieces of, of the star Wars, new corners of the star Wars galaxy. Um, but it goes back to what we were saying earlier. It's, I do think I do think Disney has correctly realized and analyzed that this this show Mandalorian is their flagship Star Wars property at the moment, and they're hanging. Uh, they're like you said they're they're like planting seeds in this that are going to be paying off in other shows as well. I think like as for as much as there's stuff that we needed to watch Book of Boba Fett to get the complete picture of season three of the Mandalorian. There's an episode we're going to talk about when we get to the convert um, that I, 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 I'm 100% certain some Star Wars show that's coming out this year or next year is going to have, you know, something go on where you're like, oh, well, you need to go back and watch the Mandalorian episode three of season three because uh, it completely sets this up. And if you didn't see that episode, you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> um, and it's a very like it is a very comic book structure. 
uh, like, like you were talking about with Marvel, like, you know, like fans of, of, of people that saw, um, did you see Dr. Strange in the Multiverse of Madness? I did. I heard a lot of complaints about that. Like fans that only watched the movies were like, why is Wanda evil? This oh. I don't have any information about why Wanda turned evil. You're telling me I have to go back and watch an entire season of a TV show to find out that. Um, that yes, that is actually especially egregious. I mean, I loved WandaVision and, and, and I would have been lost ahead of Multiverse of Madness. But yeah, that one feels... Multiverse of Madness can't give you a previously on, you know, in, in yep. the cinema. So uh, a whole season of WandaVision, that is a tough thing. But that's that's kind of kind of what the MCU at this point now, what it started in 2008. So, um, oh, my God, is that right? <laughs> so we're about 15 years in. Uh, that's just the price you pay now. You need to pay, you need mm-hmm. to start paying attention. Um, but, yeah, I, I could the Multiverse of Madness is, is a is a particularly tough one. A whole season of of Disney plus content. I think as a completionist, I appreciate um, getting the full picture. And I, and cause I, like I said, I am going to watch, I'm going to watch WandaVision. I loved WandaVision. I'm going to watch book Boba, Boba Fett. If for some reason they renew it for season two. <laughs> um, and, but I'll watch it. I'll watch everything they put out. Um, but I can also at the same time, separate myself from my fandom and look at it through the lens of a more casual fan and I don't, I don't think they deserve to be treated that way. I think like casual fans deserve to get a complete story and not have to be told like, oh, well, you're missing out because you're not investing 100% in this entire franchise. Um, and I don't know. I think there might be a way to do it where you can have Mando show up on you know another show and he does cool stuff, but not vitally important to the story stuff. That's fair. And honestly, if I was a Disney exec managing the Star Wars universe, if I had a show that was struggling, I would get on the phone to Favreau and say, hey, can, can Mando pop into my show for a couple episodes and get the yeah. ratings up? Because but I, I, we haven't talked about this specifically, but would you agree the two episodes of Book of Boa Fett that are essentially the Mandalorian season 2.5 are the best two episodes? 100%. Um, it's not a high bar, bar to clear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But one of them is literally, one of the episodes is literally called The Return of the Mandalorian. And I watched it again, um, but I don't think Boba Fett shows up for a second in the entire runtime of the episode, uh, which is wild. Um, yeah, but yeah, it, but it is, it manages to be the best episode of that season of a completely different character show. Yeah, the Mando just... He- the Mandalorian and Grogu are the rising tide that lifts all boats in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> yeah, I again, I don't begrudge them. I think it's I do think like um in order to stay relevant Star I mean it's not like Star Wars. It's not like people forget about Star Wars, but in order to to maintain their relevance and their top status, um they do need to get people on board with these sideshows, especially ones that are going to be introducing like new concepts, new factions, new characters that have no relation to the to the previous established canon. Um, and that's that seems to be the plan with a lot of these shows that are coming out soon. Um, and yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's a I, I do think it's a smart decision to do it the way they're doing it. I just I just feel multiple ways about it, you know. I think that's totally fair. There's something obviously very rewarding and reassuring about the MCU format. 
I mean, it's been wildly successful, like nothing we've ever seen in the history of movie making. Mm. But yeah, there's something there's something to be said about a standalone piece of art that can be appreciated on its own. Um, and that's something, uh, yeah, that's something I think we all want. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk about, let's talk a little bit about the pilot episode, uh, since that sets up some things that I think are really important. Um, first and foremost, I think, I think it's fun that the very first image of the, the opening, um, episode of the pilot episode is uh the mando using some sort of a handheld trinket uh we ra- later find out that's a tracking fob and th- these come up like multiple times throughout the series these tracking fobs um and these uh what are the 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 pucks what are they called the bounty yeah pucks. the like bounty pucks love that and um that definitely comes back later on i, I think it's it's cool that it's the very first thing we see mando using um because it it uh, it gets called back in the the finale of this season where Moff Gideon is mocking him and saying like you Mandalorians and your trinkets um you you're nothing without your trinkets and we see so much in this first episode of him relying on his trinkets relying on his flamethrower and his you know grappling wire and and this tracking fob and whatnot um i do like that there are a lot of occasions where we see him stripped of those things and he, and he and is resourceful and manages to uh, get out of it on his own or with help from baby Grogu and, and Bo-Katan. Um, but it's, I, I just think that's interesting. Like the, that Moff Gideon's kind of, he's kind of not wrong, but he still underestimates him. Yeah, I was, it was really a pleasure to, to rewatch that first episode, which reminded me why I just fell immediately in love with the show. And yeah, you're right about that first scene. Not only that, something I only noticed on the second time around was they're going through the opening credits, you know, with the, all the Star Wars robotic masks, you know, flashing. Mm-hmm. And, and before it even cuts to Din Djarin holding that fob, the music of the opening credits is mixed in with this beeping. And then the beeping reveals mm-hmm. itself to be the fob. It's just this really cool segue. It's a small thing, but just really shows they were they wanted that to be a splash landing. Um, the one thing I noticed about that first episode is that tonally, it's just different how the show has evolved. I think the show has become a little warmer, kinder, maybe a little more family-friendly, slightly. I mean, there's still darkness in the universe. And I think the addition of how could you not introduce a tiny, adorable baby Yoda and not have the show segue a little into something that's more um, appeals to, to to everyone, really. And mm-hmm. I think that's the, that's the genius of the show. Is we tune in for what we tune in for the Mando being a badass and Grogu being adorable, and that's kind of the baseline. And that's why, in part, I wasn't totally enamored with this season because, in some instances, and we'll get there in episode three here, and that's where it starts they're kind of sidelined in their own show a bit, but that might True. be speaking to Lou, what you were noting is that maybe they're being sidelined because they're, they're raising the profile of these old or new characters so they can get a spinoff so they can, their story can be told in another medium, which again is a, is a financially successful model. Is it great in the episode? Like, does it do a, dis- a disservice to the episode in the episode? Sometimes it does, um, in my in my in my opinion. But 
uh, that was my big takeaway that the first that first episode felt a little more raw mm. and uh, a little meaner, uh, which I like. Um, but I also love the the chemistry now in season three, but this father and son chemistry between Dinjarin and and Grogu that you d- you couldn't have in season one. It just it yeah. didn't feel right for that. So I'm okay with the show evolving and changing. Um, in general, he, yeah. Din wasn't as soft in in season one, and so the tone wasn't as soft. And that that I love that development of both the show and the character uh, coinciding. Um, and the, yeah, it's, it's more like we're seeing Din like by himself kind of, and, and, um, you know, just what he does when, when he has nobody to bounce things off of, but the pilot episode also does establish something that's a major theme throughout the whole series, which is Mando as badass as he is and as capable as he is. He puts himself into situations very, very frequently where he has to be rescued by somebody else. If there wasn't someone else around, he'd absolutely, his story would be over. Like the, what are those things Queel uh, rides up on? Um, I wish I'd written them down, but you know, there's like bipedal creatures with that. It's like two legs and a mouth. (laughs) Yes. yes. (laughs) Um, And it, he like gets attacked by one and uh, it bites his flamethrower arm and pins him to the ground and he's struggling and a second one comes along. And if not for Queel, that would be the end of the show. <laughs> that would be it. Um, and then later on, like, if not for IG-11, he wouldn't be able to rescue Grogu. Like, he would not have made it through that compound of of pirates by himself. Um, and that just repeatedly keeps coming up. We're going to talk about the lot, that a lot, especially in the Minds of Mandalore, where he literally gets captured and is helpless um, but like, yeah, I, I don't, it's, I think it's, I think it's awesome to show your hero being vulnerable in ways that you don't expect. And that manifests both in him not being a, a complete lone wolf that can handle everything that's thrown his way without any help at all. But also like the, just the idea of like when he gets this, when he adopts this baby, um, it's you know the it changes him in a profound way as well that's a really good point it was i was thinking about how he had to be saved by bokatan twice in that episode too which we'll get mm-hmm. to in a moment and i thought man mando's slipping but you're right like he he has a there's a recklessness about him that he often has to be saved yes do you know what it is? I've, I've, I wonder if I'm right about this. I'll have to like keep watching uh, the earlier seasons to see if this is true. But so far, just in the pilot and these three episodes, when Mando is is versus humanoids, he can handle as many as you throw at him. Like he can t- clear a whole entire room of of mooks like Bruce Lee uh, easily. <laughs> when it's some sort of creature, that's when he struggles. That's when he usually needs oh. to be rescued. Um, the you know, the, the thing that Queel, uh, the, the mount that Queel rescues him from. And then later in that season, the, um, the rhinoceros thing that Grogu oh, yeah. has to rescue him from. Like, whenever it's like a creature um, and he's trying to solo it, it's, that's when he runs into trouble. But if it's like just a room full of, of pirates or aliens that are on two legs, no problem. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, that sounds very accurate just based on my memory of the previous three seasons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he can definitely clear a room of goons like no one else. 
Yep. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to we'll have to see if if like any instances pop up that uh, dispute that point. But um, two other quick things from the pilot. One is uh, actually this goes back to what you're saying. There's um, two instances of Star Wars swearing uh, that happened in the pilot. Uh, I think one of the first lines when he walks into the bar is they're like eat, uh, somebody says Ichuta Mando or Mando Ichuta, um, and later two different people say Ding Ferrick, um, which they kind of don't really say anymore. I kind of miss that that went away. Ding Ferrick. Um, oh yeah. The the guy that the guy that he has a bounty on says it at one point, and then later Mando says it himself when he's frustrated about something. And it's just like Ichuta is is I think oh, that yeah. first popped up in like um, uh, Return of the Jedi. I think that's the first time we might have heard that, or maybe even A New Hope. Um, but so that's always been around. But like Ding Ferrick, that's a, I think that's a good uh, what's it called or, or a besh, um style <laughs> uh, of swear word. Yeah, we need some kind of we need Star Wars analogs of our own curse words that we can like pepper into our conversation. Yeah, I like I like having that and um it's a small thing but i like how Hutties is kind of uh like a it's not like basic in the star wars universe but Hutties is used kind of everywhere especially on the outer rim it's mm-hmm. um and i think there's even a, a moment in season three maybe it's with the anzellans where where Din Djarin says something like, i don't understand what you're saying do you speak Hutties? and mm-hmm. he says like it gets it's clearly uh uh, a common language there, but uh, oh, that yeah, is a high call. comedy. That scene where where uh, where grief Karga is like translating for him, and he's like, "Yeah, no, I got, I got that one." <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh. Yeah. And speaking of droids, um, there's a moment in the in the first episode in the pilot episode where um, he he makes his stance clear, like no droid where they're. Uh, He's renting a land speeder to get back to his right ship. Right at the beginning, yeah. And there's a really nice land speeder with, with an astromech in it, and he's like, no droids. And the guy's like, all right, very well, and dismisses it. And then this crappy falling apart land speeder <laughs> shows up. But Din prefers that uh, to the one that has an innocent astromech in it. <laughs> it's, such, um, it's such a great example of show, don't tell, right? Mm-hmm. It's all summed up right there, uh, visually. And... Yeah, I, I, I kind of forgot about his animosity towards droids, but it is brought up again in season three with mm. IG-11 slash IG-12. Um, definitely a softening there. Still kind of a, um, a reluctance to fully trust, as we see with R5-T4. Mm. But um, yeah, that is a thread that kind of continues, which I, I enjoy that that's part of his personality. Uh, another another big thing is Queel um, says to him at one point. Queel is the Ugnot uh, listeners. I'm sure you know, but um, Queel is the Ugnot voiced by Nick Nolte, uh, who's like, I have spoken at the end of every sentence. And at one point, he says um, when he's he's disappointed that Mando can't ride this this uh, mouth with two legs, and he says, "You're a Mandalorian. Your ancestors rode the great Mythosaur." Um, and that comes back in a huge way this this season. Um, so, anything else from the pilot that that stood out to you? No, it was really more of a tone and like an atmospheric thing that's changed a bit, and uh, a general coldness both to the characters and also to the the cinematography. There's kind of a grittier, grayer 
Hmm. Uh, so it was it was really fun to go back. One because I just loved that pilot episode. It did a tremendous job. The I mean, just the the final frame of that, but is great. Everything about it is really good. And just to see how Din Djarin has softened a bit, seeing how the universe has broadened a bit for good or for ill. And yeah, but um, uh, it was just a reminder about all the fun and interesting stuff this show can deliver. So, uh, yeah. All right. So let's jump into um, episode one of season three, chapter 17, the apostate. Uh, so yeah, this is where, um, we get the, the previously on that contains vital information, uh, from Book of Boba Fett. Um, mostly it's the armorer explaining to Boba that, um, you, you've removed your helmet, so you are no longer recognized by our cult. And so you have to go bathe in the living waters of Mandalore, uh, in order to be brought back into the fold. Um, and the episode itself, uh, once we get through the previously on, opens with um, the armorer pouring some, uh, what I think is living a vial of like living water into the forge. And she's forging armor for a young, um, a young Mandalorian. Uh, the first time I watched this episode, I thought they were doing a flashback. I thought Thank it was, you. you did too? Okay, yes. awesome. I'm, I'm glad so glad. I was going to ask you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh... That's immediately what I thought. I thought they were going back in time, showing us Din Djarin as a young man being baptized. And then when he shows up in that Naboo speeder, I'm like, whoa, what a cool subversion of my expectation. Uh, I'm so glad you were aligned on that, that we were thinking the same thing. Yeah, I want, that must have been deliberate in some way. Because, yeah, um, yeah it, uh, I do think the kid that we actually see is um, Ragnar Vizsla. Is that right? Yes, he is the a son, either biological or adopted, of um, Paz Paz Vizsla, who um, is it Paz we will or get. Paz? <laughs> Let's go with Paz. Okay. Uh, uh, we, uh, viewers, correct us if we are way off, but Paz. We we will talk a lot about a Paz in future episodes for sure. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, he's another character, like, you need, you kind of need to watch those episodes of uh, Book of Boba to get his full, his full steez. Um, but Ragnar, yeah, Ragnar, his armor is cool. Uh, he is taking the creed. Um, he's repeating after the armor. I'm going to read the full creed here. Um, I swear on my name and the names of the ancestors that I shall walk the way of the Mandalore. And the words of the creed are forever forged in my heart. This is the way. From this moment on, I shall never remove my helmet. Uh, interestingly, and this is part of why I thought that it was young Din Djarin, um, he doesn't repeat that part. He repeats the entire creed up until, and I shall never remove my helmet. And that's when the dinosaur turtle attacks. Um, so Ragnar... I don't know if he, I don't know if this is, this is probably never going to come up at any point in the future, but Ragnar has a loophole. Uh, he could take off his helmet if he really wants to. I didn't pick that up, but that is technically true. That dinosaur turtle, which I, it's funny. The Wikipedia entry calls it a dinosaur turtle. That yeah. is the official name as far as, as we are concerned, which just a very cool beast. I uh, wouldn't mind having an action figure of that thing. Uh, but yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, that in- the ceremony was interrupted, so he's got a loophole for the rest of his life. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, this dinosaur turtle, I'm, I'm surprised. I looked it up on Wikipedia and I was surprised that it doesn't have a proper name or like a species entry. Um, and that it's just called dinosaur turtle because I, I want an action figure of it. And generally, yeah. the, if something has a name, it's because they've manufactured uh, a product you can buy um, so they can print it on the box. But I don't know. It's not entirely out of the question. Um there's uh, there's another when we get to episode two, there's a uh, there's an action figure I really want that I don't think I'm ever going to get. Um, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we'll see, before we'll we go on this, um, I know the Mandalorians, beggars can't be choosers. Right. And they need some place. Some place of secrecy and safety away from prying eyes. Their, their secrecy is their source of their survival after Mandalore was demolished by the Empire. But couldn't they have picked a better planet? This thing is is absolutely uh, uh, dominated by these like mega predators, both the mm-hmm. dinosaur um, gator type thing. And then in episode four, teasing that next uh, podcast, uh, this, this giant rock type creature, like a Dungeons and Dragons rock. It's some kind of mm-hmm. giant predatory bird. But um, they really did not set themselves up for success on this planet uh, filled with these Thing, everything that wants to eat them. Do you think they want it that way? Do you think it's because they they like the challenge? Mandalorians definitely are not fearful, and as I mentioned before, a little bit reckless as Mando is. Um, they like a fight. They like proving themselves in battle. Maybe there's something to that. Yeah, the dinosaur turtle. Um, it it kills one Mandalorian for sure. It might have it might have like successfully killed more of them that we didn't see. But on screen, it, it fully chomps and swallows one of them. Um, so I don't know. Maybe they consider that like that's an acceptable loss. Like one, if we lose one uh, to a dinosaur turtle, <laughs> that's OK, because this this young this young Mando during his swearing in ceremony has like he survived this epic battle. Um, so now, you know, that that's going to harden him for the future. I don't know if they they do that sort of cold calculus um, and like they consider, you know, living amongst these dangerous creatures to be a form of training that they just get to have every single day that like keeps them on their toes. Um, but yeah, I, I also wonder if it's not like, if it's part of the design of like, we want to keep people away from our hiding spot. So we're going to hide in the most dangerous place possible that no one will voluntarily go to. You know what? That's a good, that's a good philosophy too. That makes sense. Um, it also just makes for exciting television if they're surrounded by monsters that are attacking their cave every now and then. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, there is something. There's probably there's probably some kind of Viking approach with the Mandalorians, right? Like dying in battle. There's a glorious dying with honor, right? That seems to be something that is meaningful to them. They, they when they when they have this when they have these glorious last stands and die protecting their brothers and sisters there's like that is a great way for them to go so there's probably they they don't want to live a life of safety right entirely Mm -hmm. that's that's a good call yeah uh what is the hard times breed uh breed hard people hard people make easy times easy times make uh soft people (laughs) and soft people make hard times hard (laughs) times make hard people um (laughs) Uh, yeah, so they're, they're just, these Mandos are getting bodied by this, uh, dinosaur turtle. The armor gets a cool, uh, couple of cool hits on it and a cool, um, 
rescues one of them from getting stomped on under the water. But then Mando shows up on his N1 Naboo Starfighter, um, which is just awesome, and uh, fires some missiles into the side of it. It's very bloody uh, for Star Wars. Um, some viscera and, and, yeah, some guts and blood. Yeah, for sure. Um, but then as soon as he lands, the armor, the first thing she says to him is like, uh, not hello, not thanks for rescuing us. She's like, you have removed your helmet. You are no longer a Mandalorian. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, um, I, I, one thing I love about this show, and it, it continues into season three, is how the faithfulness of all the, well, not of all the characters, but the faithfulness of the Death Watch, right? All these folks are kind of descended from that Death Watch on the moon of Mandalore, right? Yeah. Um, they are, they're very inflexible, which is a, kind of a flaw, but it's an interesting flaw, right? And uh, I like how the armorer is so matter of fact, like you are one of us, you are not one of us. If you're one of us, we, you, we will fight to the death for you. If you're not, you're, you're not welcome. It's very interesting. And it's interesting, and I love this, that Din Djarin buys into it. Because I think it would have been easy to make Mando, like, he was, he was raised with this, he believes in it, then he meets Grogu and he sees these, meets these new characters and sees the broader world and says, you know what, this, this is not what it's all about. But he remains faithful. He, spent, he risks his life many times to get to Mandalore to redeem himself mm-hmm. because he's so faithful. It's, it just makes that character so interesting. He's a badass, sure. He's a loving adopted father, sure. But there is this enduring religious quality this kind of um this he's zealous you know they just it, i'm glad that they haven't diluted that and made him a different character he is uh he is who he is and it's it's just something that makes him a lot more sympathetic to me yeah i i respect that greatly um i am uh someone you and i have been friends since we were in high school um so yeah. you know this about me but um when we, you know, I, I am somebody that grew up in a, in a religion, in a, a Roman Catholic family. And as a teenager, I broke away from that. And I, you know, decided to go down my own path in terms of my personal beliefs about things and spirituality. Um, but I've, it's, it's something I've always been interested in. I've always been interested in like other people and their faith and their, their devotion to their religions, even though like, it, it's not for me. Like it doesn't work for me, but I respect it when other people um, have that. And, and in a lot of cases, I'm, I'm envious of it. Um, and so this is, this is a very good example of like a character that I like, part of me wants to identify with Din Djarin and be like, oh yeah, if it were me, I'd be like, you know, screw this cult and their restrictive rules yeah. and their, their, dismissal of me even though I just rescued all of them I'm going my own way and there's part of me that would want that for Din Djarin, but a bigger part of me respects him for this is like how he has lived his entire life ever since he was rescued as a child by this culture and he he believes in it so fully and arguably it does it leads him to places that he otherwise wouldn't go to he wouldn't have as strong of a conviction to be dedicated to like a quest that he's on, if not for these deeply intrinsic beliefs. And those 
those quests that he goes on and sticks to and sees to completion lead him to success ultimately and lead his people to success. Um, and so there, I mean, there's a lot to be said about that. Like him never wavering from his faith is part of the reason that, you know, Bo gets on board and helps uh, rescue the, you know, help get, find a home for the entire Mandalorians and fight for them. Um, and it's just, it's just so important. Like if, uh, if he did, if he was like me and he did break away from them, it might've been a shorter story. It might've been not, it might've been a less interesting story. Yeah, the show is unapologetic about that, which I love. And I agree with you. Like, I watched Ginger, and I'm like, Din, what are you doing, man? Like, this, like, go go on adventures with Grogu and be your own person. Take but if they off. did, uh, yeah, the show would not be as interesting or as successful. And in the same way, they are unapologetic in making Grogu a foundling and eventually an apprentice I think a lesser show would have been, it would have been like the amazing adventures of Din Djarin and Grogu, and it would have been a cool bounty hunter and a Jedi out gallivanting throughout the universe. But because Din Djarin feels so passionately about the Mandalore way, that his adopted son, who came back to him, which we saw in the Book of Boba Fett, he's, make, he's not, uh, I mean, he's still embracing his force powers, as we'll see in a very cool scene, I think, in episode four. Mm-hmm. But he's he's like he's getting Mandalorian armor. He's being trained, um, so he is force sensitive. And he did he was once upon a time this is Grogu on a path towards being a Jedi. But now he's on this different path because he loves his father. And I just think that's I, I love how unapologetic the show is because again, a, a lesser, more disposable show would just have some fun adventures in space with a force wielding mm-hmm. cute guy and a badass with a gun. But Downy this. Of the week. Yeah, this is the foundation of this show is Din Djarin's loyalty to his people and to his religion, let's call it his faith. Let's call it his faith. And mm-hmm. then Grogu being along for the ride and buying into it too, because they love each other. And that's just that's a that's a really strong foundation for a TV show. Yeah, the um the the title of the show, The Mandalorian. Uh, it obviously refers to Din Djarin, but you can make an argument that it refers to Grogu, that it's his story of becoming the Mandalorian. Um, you could also make an argument, especially like in this season, that it refers to Bo-Katan, um, that she is the titular Mandalorian that's like the most important Mandalorian uh, or whatever. Um, quick question, uh, while we're still talking about the opening scene. When the armor puts the helmet on Ragnar, why does it he why does it make a sound like it's creating an airtight seal? <laughs> the show plays a little fast and loose with this, it, with all the Mandalorians. Like when in episode two, when Mando seals his his suit and steps onto the planet, there's a scene at the end where a very implausible scene at the end of the season when a character kind of leaves a planet. And yep. and uh, anyway, flies into the st- into space In atmosphere. Yes, but so the show plays a little fast and loose with the suits and like how um, the helmet fits kind of loosely. But if you press a button and suddenly it's airtight. It, yeah, I agree that um, I'm not sure about the science behind that, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also jetpacks just don't make sense. And <laughs> 
Um, and the fact that they magnetically clip onto your back and they don't fall off after that. Okay. Yeah. We're not going to get into the science. Right, right. <laughs> um, the, uh, okay. So they, yeah. So basically they have this conversation. The armor tells them like, this is what you got to do. This is your quest for this season. You got to get to the, to the living waters of Mandalore. Yep. Um, and so he sets off. And we get this really, really beautiful scene of him traveling through hyperspace. Oh. Uh, and Grogu is is looking out and he sees these uh, Pergil. Do you know what Pergil are? So I was hoping you would know. I just called them in my notes star whales, uh, but mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what they are. They are uh, hyperspace whales, basically. Okay. Um, they they fly through the high, hyperspace lanes Um I they they show up in Rebels. I don't know if you've uh, if you're planning to watch Rebels after you finish. I saw the Clone pilot, Wars, but once upon a time. But I do plan to watch it because I know Bo-Katan features in there pretty prominently, right? Highly recommended. The Rebels is a is a fantastic show. Um, okay. It's and what you what you were talking about with the Clone Wars cartoon, how it's a little bit unfocused. It kind of jumps around. Uh, the great thing about Rebels is it follows a small crew. Um, and you know, it, it really develops those characters and leans into them and focuses on them the entire time. Um, one of whom has a very brief cameo in this season. And when we get to that episode, uh, we'll talk about it, but it won't be, it won't be today. Um, but, uh, that's all I want to say for now. Cause you haven't, you haven't seen it. So I don't want to fully spoil that for you. Um, so uh, yeah, it just it's uh, it's just like a nice little piece of world building and connecting to the previously established uh, series um, that these Purgles show up and that especially that Grogu sees them. I think Mando is just like sleeping. Uh, he's, you know, ca- t- catching a nap during this <laughs> time. And it's just Grogu experiencing this by himself and and connecting to the to these um, these creatures that are very important to the force itself. Um, and that- yeah, that scene might be my favorite in the whole season. I oh, wow. rewatching it. I just, I mean, it's short. I, I, well, the penultimate up episode is probably my favorite of the season, um, in part because of the the Paz uh, Vizsla stuff. But and it's 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 just so beautiful and touching. I it's the way it's filmed. The so the pup. First of all, let's just huge kudos to the pup puppet masters the and the puppetry of grogu throughout the whole series and the season just so expressive and so he's looking around in awe but also fearful right scared mm. of these 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 mammoth beasts in outer space and it's, it's a close-up of him and then it pans back and you see the scale of it the n1 is tiny silhouetted against these shadows of the these star whales it's just that's what like it's just a really cool moment for Grogu showing his connect his connection to the forest, but also his youngness. And, mm-hmm. his, you know, he's, just, he's still a kid really. And he's scared. And he, after that, he kind of, he gets out of his little hub, his dome and, and cuddles up with Din Djarin, Right. Mm-hmm. And, but then it also has that, the, the awe and the majesty of star Wars. Like this is something who comes up with this, this, so, you know, this interstellar, whale in in hyperspace it's just it was really a beautiful moment and um yeah definitely one of the high points of this episode and the whole season for me and just the perspective too like we're watching this incredible tiny creature that we know because of yoda like can live for centuries 
and can is very strong in this mystical thing called the force. Um, and we're what we are in awe watching him and like his deeds and feats. And he is in awe of these hyperspace whales and like for, you know, for that, just that, that extra layer of, um, it just adds, it just really adds to like, wow, these are really incredible. These must be really incredible. And the scale of them must be so incredibly huge and, and, uh, uh, dwarfing to anything else around them. Um, that it, yeah, just, it, it's just, it creates all it's, it's literally awesome. <laughs> yes. Well said. It's, um, yeah, that's, this is what Star Wars is all about. Kind of taking us to new places, showing us new things. So, um, so they're traveling through, they're traveling to get to Navarro, uh, and catch up with Grief Karga, um, because, uh, Din realizes he's gonna, if he's gonna go to Mandalore, this is a very important, um, piece of groundwork that they lay. Everyone, everyone thinks from the armorer to Bo-Katan, like everyone thinks that the, the, the surface of Mandalore is toxic, uh, that the air is not breathable because of what the empire did to it. Um, when they basically clasped the planet. Um, so nobody goes there cause they think nothing, it's uninhabitable. Nothing can survive on the surface. So he decides if I'm going to go there, uh, I need to get some sort of droid that can take atmosphere readings and basically be the canary in the coal mine. Um, so he, there's, as far as we know, there's only one droid in the entire galaxy that man <laughs> would trust. And that's IG 11 who died in season one. <laughs> so uh, not only died, got blown up and melted in lava. Um, but the parts of him that are left, when we get to Navarro, we see, first we see some Kowakian monkey lizards. And I mentioned that because that's going to be very important in the later episode. Um, and then we see this, this statue of IG-11, which is part statue and part actually IG-11. <laughs> right. Um, and it's, I, I love that it's like, a droid is the hero of this settlement. Like the, the people, they, you know, they, 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 they have this reverence for a droid, which was, um, it was the, it was the opposite side of a war 30 something years ago, like four, 35, 40 years ago in this world. Uh, but now like they've come so far, droids themselves have come so far that, you know, this one did such a, such a selfless thing for the people of this, of this settlement. And the fact that they recognize that and honor that I think is really beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of world building. Yeah. It's uh what is grief say to Mando? A lot has changed around here and mm -hmm. it has, it's, it's a, uh, it's a different place. It's a different setting. I think Navarro for me was kind of, and I do, the, the statue is great. Actually, I wouldn't mind a, an action figure of just the statue with the, Ooh, yeah. with the blaster held up high. Um, and then when it cuts to the statue afterwards and half of it's missing because we assume it's been taken away to, to be rehabilitated. Um, but Navarro for me was kind of a metaphor for season three. When Grief Cargo says a lot has changed around here, it felt like season three, a lot has changed around here because of the, mm. it feels more, again, connected to other media. It feels more serialized, right? This season feels like a serial where seasons one and two felt more like, one-off monster, you know, bounty of the week kind of thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's cool to see. It, it's it's very emblematic of the transition of the show. Mando becoming softer, 
uh, Grogu wearing his chainmail armor, Grief Karga going from kind of a, not a sinister character, but a, a slimy-ish kind of character to somewhat reputable, right? With those two mm-hmm. cute droids holding the, tr- like the, uh, the yeah. <laughs> his robe, uh, mm-hmm. which is just a cute little uh, touch. But yeah, uh, I um, he's grief is like like uh, Lando. Um, he's he's like the next Pokemon evolution of Lando Calrissian. <laughs> like he has two yeah. droids that their entire purpose is just to carry his cape. Yeah, I grief. I mean, I I Carl Weathers. I just I think you and I grew up. We're a couple years apart, but he's just an '80s icon, right? '70s, yep. '80s, Rocky, Predator, uh, just a total badass. Uh, loved him Happy in that. Happy Gilmore. <laughs> oh, man. Yes. Oh, it's all in the hips, right? It's all in the <laughs> hips. And then his, I, are you an Arrested Development fan? Yep. He showed up in there as, as himself. As Carl just, Yeah, great turn is kind of this uh, um, uh, very, um, uh, uh, always trying to find a free meal. Just a very interesting take on his character. <laughs> so I, I've always loved him when he showed up in the pilot was so happy. I'm so glad he's still there. And he's, yeah, evolution, right? His character has evolved a lot, but still has that sharp edge to himself. Uh, there's a scene where he's they're in his office and he's talking to Din Djarin. He references Grogu, but calls him like the kid or the, the child wow. or something like that. And, and Din Djarin says, it's Grogu. And he looks at him. He's like, yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> no, no, he says, if, if you say so. Like, just like mm-hmm. he's not interested in, and so there's still a, a hard edge to him, which is revealed in that shootout right after mm-hmm. that. So I'm, uh, I like how Karga has evolved. It, it's, it's nice to see there isn't a static quality to the show. The characters are changing a bit. And that, that moment is great. It's, it's probably the second greatest moment in that scene. Um, the greatest being Grogu sitting in that swivel chair and doing what we all do when we're sitting in a swivel chair, but using the force to do it uh, and just like spinning himself around and then later oh, um, pulling a piece of, of candy to, <laughs> to his hand. That, yeah, um, was watching that with Beth and our hearts melted just seeing him like it's in the background, too. You have to look mm-hmm. for it. But he's just he, every now and then, you know, uses the force to push himself around. And it's it's just a great little moment of him being a kid. It's also like he does it a couple times, and then finally Din at one point just like puts his hand on there <laughs> without a word. He just puts his hand on it to stop it. It's, <laughs> it's such a great little like parenting moment of like, um, oh another another actually nice little parenting moment when they first see the statue. Uh, Din says to Grogu, "Do you remember your old friend?" Mm. Um, which I, I think it's I think that's showing some of the development of Din in terms of like, I mean, season one was a big journey for him to trust IG and let him, you know, help them out in, a, in, in several situations in the first place. Um, but just the fact that he refers to him in that terminology now, you know, this is your old friend, not like this is, you know, the guy that rescued you or some there. I think there's a lot of other ways that if he was completely dismissive of droids still, and still had the same, um, level of resentment against them he might not have worded it as kindly uh or as respectfully um but just the fact that he recognizes like maybe he doesn't say this is our friend but you know at least to Grogu, he's like this that's your old friend up there isn't it nice that they have a statue of him that's a good point whenever they when it whenever dinjarn talks to Grogu, it's very much like not as peers but he speaks to him honestly and frankly 
and and respects his intelligence. It, it doesn't, you know, it's um, he's, he's he's I think he's always he's always training him in a way, even when he's not giving a lesson. The way he talks and the things he focuses on, uh, it seems like there's a lesson there. So yeah, that dynamic is just that's one thing I cannot complain about. Those two together. Yeah. Um, so Karga. Uh, gets called by his protocol droid to go uh, take care of some pirates. Um, there are some pirate Vane and his pirates who all work for Gorin Shard um, are they sh- they've showed up and they're demanding that they get served a drink at their old bar, which has been converted into a school. Um, and so grief goes down to, to confront them with Mando and, um, they, I love the fact that like Vane, I think is Vane is an excellent character. Vane, do you agree with me that Vane is basically the template for Starscream? Or the other oh, way, I, I mean, the other way around, like Starscream is the template for Vane. He's the second in command, he's but he's like, yep. he's capable, but he's also sl- sniveling and cowardly, but also like a good fighter when the chips, when it comes down to it. That's a good analogy. Yeah, he's. He's a lieutenant. He's pretty mean, capable enough, but would absolutely stab his leader in the back if given the opportunity. Always seems to slip away and and like get away. Like I, uh, it's not like a, I mean, we've seen the show, so <laughs> it's not really a spoiler. But even in like the episode that I'm very excited to get to um, on on you know the next time we we record um, with Gorian, where with Gorian Shard and all the pirates. He survives that episode too. He gets away at the end. He's the only one uh, that survives. So I, I love that they're establishing Vane right away. Um, I really want him to come back in season four because I think he's a great, like, smaller antagonist. He's a great, like, mini boss for, for Din. And I love the fact that he keeps coming back and haranguing him and being a thorn in his side. I totally agree. I really want him to come back in part because I just like when shows keep villains alive to keep conflicts alive uh too many shows in general at the end of the season the big bad is gone and then you have to create a new big bad but it's not usually how life happens usually some of these people endure so uh yeah i hope he can be kind of a thorn in mando's side moving forward Mm -hmm. or they might do the thing where like like fast and the furious always does where like he was the villain uh, but then you know because of so many things changed and he killed all of his pirate crew and everyone whatnot. <laughs> Maybe he decides like, you know, I can't beat you. So I'll join you. <laughs> Maybe he could be the new Migs Mayfield, right? Kind of that's, yeah. uh, Bill Burr's character from season one and two, who former Imperial, who kind of joins the heist and becomes sort of a, sort of a good guy. Sort of a good guy. That's a great description. So Star Wars is filled with a lot of characters <laughs> that are sort of a good guy. Yes. I like that. Um, uh what else um oh so uh mando wants to fix up ig11 he wants to take him um with him to to mandalore um grief takes him to the anzellans because you know if anybody can fix uh ig11 it's them and the anzellans are one of my favorite we, we were talking about this briefly before we started recording one of my favorite things about Star Wars, like modern Star Wars, I think they are an excellent invention of the sequel trilogy. Um, I love that they they brought them back for the Mandalorian and that they're per, they're going to perpetually be part of Star Wars. Uh, maybe not in a huge way, but I just I think they're fan. I think I love them as much, if not more than I love Ewoks and Wookiees. 
they're so charming to me. <laughs> um, and so this one ends Ellen is, uh, <laughs> telling him, uh, you can't, he, we can't fix IG 11. He doesn't have a memory chip. Um, Oh wait, did we skip over the part where, uh, where it tries to kill, uh, Grogu? <laughs> I think we skipped over that. Sorry. Um, yeah, when they yes. first reactivate IG-11, it immediately, actually, it repeats exactly the, 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 the line that it has from the pilot episode um, when it goes and it's like, Article 6 of whatever compels you to uh, give up the target. Um, and that's like what he's spouting when he, when he uh, comes back online. And if you remember from the pilot, he, was, he found the condition of bringing the baby back dead acceptable, um, and was about to shoot him. So when he wakes up, when he's resurrected, uh, it seems like he's converted back to that um, point in his programming or his code or whatever, uh, and immediately goes after him. And it's kind of like a really good horror sequence. It's like almost like a Sam Raimi kind of um, like horror sequence of this, this arm just dragging this body towards the baby and trying to crush him. Agreed. Any, actually, anytime Grogu is in peril, I get super stressed out. Super stressed <laughs> out. I mean, I know Grogu is Disney's golden goose, and they're not going to do any. Well, if they do, I, I mean, they will be held to pay. But yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that was super creepy, and um, and that's a good callback. You're right. That the the like that voice prompt is the same. Um, I also is a that's that is that scene where I think. Din throws throws Grogu to grief, right? Uh, yep. Trying to get get him out of danger. And whenever Grogu, the puppet, is thrown or does a force jump, it seriously looks like they have a they have like a someone on the set just takes the puppet and throws it in the air. Like it looks yep. as graceful as that sounds. Um, uh, yeah, very very funny. Whenever Grogu kind of does somersaults in the air, it's not that he doesn't look like a a, a well oiled, uh, well trained Jedi. He just kind of looks like he's <laughs> flailing in space. I love it. Yeah, and when he's walking, especially, I think that's fantastic. Uh, when you see a little like the waddle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so okay, so then they they decide. Okay. Oh, actually, one other important thing is neither of them is able to stop IG eleven. It's the protocol droid. The protocol droid pushes a statue uh, onto him and crushes his, his head. Yeah, that I was that was a nice. Uh, uh, nice little moment. Protocol droid for the win. Yeah. Um, so then they take him to the space gnomes, uh, the Enzelans, and um, Grogu doesn't doesn't often get to see like creatures smaller than himself that are cuddly uh, like a baby. Um, so he tries to hug them, uh, and they're like, "No, bad baby." Um, I, I lo- we were talking about Hatties earlier. I love the Anzelan language too because of like how it sprinkles in common words or base uh, sorry basic words, um, and you can sort of understand what they're saying. Uh, but yeah, IG Eleven has no um, memory chip, and why did I write down? Oh, so uh, so they decide they are going to go to uh where are they going oh to oh, they go Calavan. back to Tatooine right they go to Tatooine yes they go to Tatooine to talk to Pally right to get um or is that the next yes episode? the the um the lovely Amy Sedaris who is just a hoot um a little a little that character feels like it maybe she doesn't quite belong in Star Wars but I just love Sedaris and she's funny 
and uh, her character with the frizzy hair and the missing tooth and like mm-hmm. the uh, the way she speaks Jawa ease or I'm not sure what the Jawa language is, but the fact uh, that she dated a Jawa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's just such a goofball. Uh, so I don't want her to leave at all. Um, mm-hmm. It's fun to see her, but yeah, that's where they introduce reintroduce R5D4. So this astromech droid rolls out, and I look at the red coloring. And I turned to Beth. I'm like, is that R5-D4? And sure enough, it is. I don't know how I feel about this. This is another kind of felonyism, if that's a word, in that, like, oh, let's make, like, one thing I really did not like about the prequel trilogy is that everything was so connected. You know, um, R2 happened to be a droid on the Naboo freighter. Right. Anakin built 3PO, <laughs> right? Um you know, they didn't have Yoda and and Yoda and Chewie knew each other, stuff like that. So yeah. um, I don't like all the connections in this this vast emptiness of space with these trillions of lives and thousands of planets. Um, so I'm like, R5-D4 feels a little forced, but he would have been on Tatooine. He might have endured. Um, it's kind of cool to see a familiar droid. So I'm, I'm, I'm I don't know, I'm, I'm ambivalent about it. Um, how, how, how do you feel about it? Well, they move all the necessary pieces for it to work. Because like you said, we the last time we see R5, he's on Tatooine and he's with the Jawas. Like he uh, almost gets sold to uh, Owen, but then he breaks down. Uh, according to the book, um, from a certain point of view, he does so on purpose because R5, R2 ordered him to so that he could. I didn't know it, that. Oh, it's a whole thing. Yeah, apparently like while they were in the barge, R2 and R5 had a conversation where R5 like identified himself as part of the rebel alliance as well. And R2 basically told him in binary, um, we have to play up this ruse because I have to get close to um, Obi-Wan Kenobi and like give him these plans or whatever. So like you need to uh, basically tank the sale. Um, Yeah, it's there's there's this book. Have you have you read the book uh, from a certain point of view? No. It's a very fun, it's non-canon. So I just want to clear that up. Like everything I'm saying about R5, this is not actually Star Wars canon. Um, But there's a book called From a Certain Point of View that goes into these minor background characters. um, One of whom, we're going to talk actually a lot about it in the the Minds of Mandalore episode. uh, And and it's it's, in a very surprising way. Um, but this book goes into like the minds of particular stormtroopers that were like on the Death Star and like what their journey was um, and stuff like that. So it's a really fun book that just sort of fills in gaps and like has fun with side characters from Star Wars. Anyway, one of those tales um, is R5. So anyway, back to like actual Star Wars canon. Um, right. So he was either wh- whether it was on purpose or not, he broke down. The Jawas brought him back on their barge. So it make I mean, it, it tracks that um, they have a relationship with Pelimoto. She's on Tatooine. This is her what she does. She collects junk and uses it to fix up things. Um, so I don't, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not a far leap that um, yes. R5 it's in particular would be the astromech that, you know, ends up with him. Um, the neat, the really the neat part of it. And this is really subtle because they don't tell you, they don't reveal this at all until three episodes later. Um, R5 is a spy. And even now, like at this point, uh, he was planted in some way, or I guess at the, by this point, um, the 
resistance fighter, the guy, the X-Wing pilot. Uh, I can never remember that character's name. He's going to show up oh, in episode four right. or five, but, um, uh, but anyway, he has already, um, as we'll find out in the next step, in the next couple episodes, um, planted a tracker in this R5 unit um, because he knows that it's, that Mando's, somehow he knows that Mando's going to get this R5 unit and bring it back to, to the convert. And that's how he's going to find the convert. That's right. I was a little unclear about that when that happened, but yes, that sounds about right. Um, yes. <laughs> when we, when we get to that episode where that pilot reveals that information, we'll, we'll check back in and see if we were right about that. But I think like by this point, somehow he already knew that, <laughs> that Mando was going to come see right. Palimoto and need this droid. I don't know how he would know all of that. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I missed something and we're going to find it when we get to those episodes, but either way, um, she is, uh, Pelly has to refit the N1 starfighter because, uh, she took out the droid port so that Grogu could have his own little backseat and she has to replace that now. So R5 can fit in it. Um, and they take off in one of the best shots of, uh, just oh, yes. cinematography of the season where it's Boonta Eve and there's just fireworks going off everywhere and just soars through the fireworks in the sky. Um, Gorgeous. Yeah. That, yeah. that, um, they use that. I remember that scene from the trailer, the season three trailer, and it caught my eye then. And yeah, another great aerial shot. Um, yeah. The two of them kind of huddled together in the ship, um, with the flashing lights in the background there. Yeah. This, this episode, this episode was probably my favorite of the first three. Um, even if it felt a little crowded cause they were setting up a lot of storylines for the season. Uh, you know, like they got to stop by Tatooine, got to stop by, uh, the, the, Navarro. Uh, they have to eventually go see Bo-Katan and it's kind of setting up the stage. So it just, it felt kind of pilot ish, you know, like when you watch a pilot for a new show, and they're introducing all these characters. So the, the episode itself always struggles, but then they get that out of the way, and then the, the, the series can really take off. That was my feeling of this episode. That said, it was my favorite in part because of the, the photography of it, the direction of it. Um, yeah, it was directed by uh, the series mainstay, Rick, uh, Rick Famuyiwa. Who has done a lot of episodes? In fact, he directed my favorite episode of the series, which is season two's "The Believer," the one. Uh, that is the episode where they raid that imperial installation. It's the first episode. Mando removes his helmet um, mm. when he's on that oh. imperial console. Which is, is that just, the one with like the crazy Twi'lek and the um, the other guy that like gets like fire blasted on him? Oh, that might be. Well, there's that heist episode in season one, which is where they introduce uh, Bill Burr's character, right? Um, okay, I'm thinking of a totally makes Mayfield, episode, then. and then Mayfield yeah. comes back in this episode. It, it's um, the episode before Moff Gideon had absconded with Grogu, and the only way to get the coordinates of his ship were to get it from this Imperial database. Right. They they essentially break May- Mayfield out of prison. Oh yeah, it's oh, that, that's, that's where he that, confronts his old commander. Yes, the conflict. Oh, oh God, man, that, yeah. right. So that uh, same director, Rick Famuyiwa. Hopefully, I'm doing that name justice. But um, 
he he's directed a lot of the episodes I like, and he did this one. And uh, yeah, his 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 style works for me. Yeah, Rick Fumi also um, writes a lot of episodes too, so he's a great writer and director. Um, the uh, so after that awesome shot of them taking off through the fireworks, uh, that's. Um, uh, they're kind of flying through an asteroid field, a very common Star Wars thing um, that mm-hmm. I, that's always fun. And they get accosted by six uh, six starfighters. I think four at first, and then and then two more join in. Um, but it's uh, uh, Vane and a bunch of pirates from Gorian Shard's crew, and they're ordering him to give himself up. Um, and he just very. He the way he takes them all down one by one is awesome. The way he like hides behind these asteroids and uses them for cover, um, and then finally makes it to uh, or Vane kind of leads him to Gorian's uh, ship, his big cruiser, and they have a confrontation. Uh, Gorian's like, "Give yourself up, and we'll show you mercy." And he just says, like, in the middle of teaching uh, Grogu all of these lessons, he just casually is like, hey, here's another lesson for you. Never trust a pirate. Flips a switch, boom, goes into hyperdrive. (laughs) Yeah, that was, I love that. Great moment. Um, Do you have anything else about this uh, this dogfight or or the introduction of Corey and Shard? The the fight itself kind of gave me a flashback to episode two when Boba... Uh, Jango and Boba are chasing Ben Obi-Wan's ship yeah. through that asteroid field. It just it the, the 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 rotating close together asteroids kind of reminded me of that plus the um, there's a Mandalorian involved. But yeah, that scene that kind of cat and mouse scene in those asteroids really cool uh Din really representing himself as a total badass and just mm-hmm. wiping the floor with them. Yeah, that was that was a good that was a good one. And Vane too. Don't sleep on Vane because like he not only survives this dogfight, but like manages to outfox uh Din in a way and get him where he wants him to be strategically. Um and again, the the, the episode that focuses on the pirates, we're gonna see Vane's piloting skills come up again. Um don't sleep on Vane. Vane's a Vane's a contender. Um so, all right, so then they make it to the star system where the Mandalorian star system, um, uh, Din is, is imparting more wisdom on Grogu, giving him more, like, lessons about, you know, this is how you uh, track, like, this is your map, and this is how you, like, know how much fuel you have and whatever. Um, and, and these are very important things to set up for later when he's going to need to use those skills. Uh, but they get to Kalavala. Uh, which is the Mandalorian castle uh, of the Kree's family that Bo-Katan currently resides in. And uh, he goes and he talks to her and he tells her, like, I need to go to the living waters. And and um, she basically tells him, like, I'm not interested in anything but sitting on this throne. Uh, I lost the Darksaber and all my forces melted away. And so good luck, but um, I hate you. <laughs> There's the uh, oh, you know what, Lou? I I think I got something wrong. That that brief respite on Tatooine is at the very beginning of, of episode two. I think so. so. I mis- it's okay. I misspoke. It's okay. But our commentary remains uh, true that the fireworks scene, the R five D four stuff. So I got that confused. But yes, uh, that meeting with Bo-Katan, who seems very dejected um, uh, on her throne, kind of felt like the uh, beginning of. Uh, 
Clockwork Orange, you're like panning back from the throne, you know. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Katie Sackhoff, who I've been in love with since she played Starbuck in the reboot of um, Battleship Battlestar Galactica, really mm-hmm. great performance um, throughout the season. It kind of becomes the Bo Katan show eventually uh, for a while. Are, are you part of the 2%? Now, what is that? Oh man. Okay. I'm gonna... <laughs> is this a rebels or a clone wars reference or neither? It's more of a meta thing. I'm going to, I'm going to try oh. to find a link um, to this interview, a recent interview with Katie Sackhoff where uh, <laughs> she's talking, I think it's like a podcast or something, but she's talking to, talking about um, uh, fans and, and, and the things that she like reads about like what fans are saying about Bo-Katan. And she's like, yeah, you know, I think there's like 70% of fans out there that are like, they like Bo and they care about what happens to her. And then there's like 20% that just hate her uh, and then 10% that are indifferent and then 2% that want me to sit on their face. <laughs> oh, okay. And like the entire internet's reaction to that has been like, I think I think uh, Katie Sackhoff might be bad at math because 2% is a wildly low number for that estimate. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'll have to look up that interview. Yeah, I'll try, I'll try to find a link to it. Anyway... Um, <laughs> she is brilliant. I, yeah, I don't want to just, I, yeah, I, I don't want to reduce her just to like, oh God, she's hot. Um, she is brilliant. She has been, I've also loved her and respected her since Battlestar Galactica. Uh, she is an absolute badass. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. She also, she voiced Bo-Katan on the Clone Wars series. Um, you were and correct. so she has embodied this character for a long time and now literally gets to, to bring it to life on screen and she does such a good job, um, especially, my God, especially in the next episode. Yeah. She has some of the most badass moments. Um, Agreed. Yeah. So I think I think that's everything with this episode. Do you have anything else that we might have missed on Chapter 17, The Apostate? That was it. Um, apart from, again, uh, the jury shall disregard the testimony about Tatooine uh, and R5-D4. <laughs> that is to, 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 to come. But yeah, this episode, um, after I watched the, I rewatched the first three episodes over this past week, and I wasn't in love with any of them. They were all kind of like decent-ish for me, but this one I liked the most. The, the big drawback to this one, again, was it felt like they were setting up a lot of through lines for season three, and so it was a bit crowded with that. Um, but it had that that Star Wars scene. It had some cute Grogu stuff. It had the reintroduction of some beloved characters. It had uh, a, some new promises with the pirates and um, and with the reconquest of Mandalore. So it sets up a lot of interesting stuff. Not not everything it sets up is is um, resolved satisfact in a satisfactory way for me. But we we have plenty of time to talk about that. Yeah. Oh, also, I was just uh, just uh, looked on my notes, um, and I was wrong earlier. They they do bring back Dank Farrick. Uh, Gorian Shard says it in that scene um, after Mando escapes. He like sort of slams his hand down on his throne or whatever, and he's like, oh, okay. "Dank Farrick." Um, I missed so that. So they do bring that back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. good. Uh, all right. So let's move on to um, chapter eighteen. Uh, the Minds of Mandalore. This is season three, episode two. Um, so 
this is, uh, I th- yeah, I think this episode starts with Pelly um, ripping yeah, off correct. Rodian, is what I wrote down. Um, she has basically gotten her uh, droids to her pit droids, which uh, that's really fun that she has these like episode one pit droids. Mm-hmm. Um, steal parts from his speeder uh, so it doesn't work and he has to bring it into the shop. And then uh, she gives him a whole like rigmarole about, oh, yeah, now I got to work on Boon to Eve. So you got to pay me <laughs> up front, half up front. Um, and they, and then as soon as he leaves, she's like, all right, all right, put it back together. Hurry up. Let's go. Let's go. Um, one, one little bit of like, just again, Star Wars, like slang and language. I love, uh, she says, um, uh, I, I wrote this down without context, but she says either to the Rodian or to Mando, she says, sorry, pal, no chance cubes. Um, chance cubes being a replacement for dice, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good call. I missed that. One thing I did catch, though, and I hope you catched it too, and it was great timing because I've been re-watching season one of The Clone Wars, and there's an arc there where Anakin, Ahsoka, and a couple of troopers land this planet, and it's inhabited by this very peaceful, non-confrontational race called the Lerman, which are essentially mm-hmm. sentient lemurs. Um, and... Uh, and there's a scene, so there, uh, Gro, uh, someone on the set threw Grogo with the puppet in the air and, and, uh, and, um, and um, Pelly, Pelly, Pelly Motto catches him and says, when did you learn to leap like a Lerman? Oh, and I'm, yeah. I had just watched that episode. I'm like, Lerman, Lerman. So there's um, Favreau and Filoni keep doing their homework and inserting those little mythological references, you know. Yeah, they use every part of the buffalo. Nothing's wasted. Yes, that's a good. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Um, so, uh, okay, so yeah, then um, they get the N one refitted for R five, um, and they take off. And okay, so this I think this is when Mando gives uh, Grogu the whole rundown of like, this is your map, and this is your fuel gauge, and this is you know all that other stuff. And he tells him like, I, that's the, um, Con- Concordia. I think Concordia is the name of the moon yeah. uh, or the side planet cool the system that he grew up on and his whole sect, uh, the death watch sect grew up on. Um, I did a little research on Wikipedia and, um, I mean this, you're, you're also going to like see this in play out firsthand when you watch later episodes of the Clone Wars, but when like Death Watch tried to take over and they like um, had a confrontation with Clan Vizsla, but then Vizsla like joined the Death Watch and that's why Paz Vizsla is one of them. Um, they got, basically they got exiled to this moon of Concordia. And that's mm. where like the armor and Paz and, and Din were operating out of um, for a Very while. Very interesting. And, um, but now um, Mando is, is, uh, yeah, so he he like points that out. He points out where Kalevala is, so that uh, which is Grogu very important, going to be able to find <laughs> it on his own later. Well, on his own in quotes because he does have an astromech with him. Right, so. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. Yeah, um, there's um. Oh, yeah. sorry, keep going. No, go ahead. There's and maybe you're about to get this. There's a line when um when he's pointing to the planets. Maybe he's either pointing on the the grid, like the digital grid, or actually pointing to Mandalore. But he says to Grogu, that's the homeworld of our people. 
the home world of our people. He doesn't emphasize mm. our, but I heard that. And I'm like, that's another, Grogu is a Mandalorian foundling. That is his main, like, that is who he is. He's not a Jedi anymore, you know? And I, I love that because um, the home world of our people, it's just been so established that they are the same. They are a Mandalorian and a Mandalorian in training. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a little throwaway thing, but I love that. Well, it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why, um, why the creed, why the like never remove your helmet part of the creed is so important to at least this sect of the Mandalores, uh, because part of their philosophy is like, we wear, we keep our helmets on so that we are, we all look like Mandalorians. Um, it, cause it does not matter what species you are, what race you are, whatever, like that's the last thing that matters. Um, that's not what makes you a Mandalorian. It's not a birthright. It's not a, um, it's not a, it's not genetic. Um, you know, unlike the empire, the empire, you know, their stormtroopers all wear helmets, but if they take them off, every single one of them is human. As far as, as far as I know, in all of star Wars lore, the empire, uh, apart from general, uh, not general, Admiral Thrawn, I think is the single exception. Thrawn, yeah. I don't think the empire ever um, employs or puts in a uniform uh, an alien species. They'll employ bounty hunters and they'll employ, you know, mercenaries to do dirty work. But um, I don't think we've ever seen, uh, apart from Thrawn, uh, an imperial that is not human. Yeah, Thrawn, I think, is the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, it's um, even in, yeah, it's even rare to see uh, a human minority, a person of color or a woman in an imperial uniform. Mm-hmm. It's uh, there's a, and that that yeah, I, the Mandalorian, I I love that. It's very much kind of a, if you agree with our, like, warrior code, if you believe believe like with a, if you are aligned with us civically. It does not matter your nationality or your race or your gender. It's it's a very cool uh, take on uh, the the whole Mandalorian philosophy is just fascinating to me, and I'm glad. And they really they elaborated upon it in this season. Yeah, yeah, they're they're such a like collectivist culture um, in a in a in I think a positive way. Um, so they uh, they they get to the surface of Mandalore and. Um, Mando tells R5, like, all right, you got to go down there. You got to take some air samples. And R5 kind of protests and he's like, There's nothing funnier than a cowardly droid, right? Yes. (laughs) R5 has so much personality. Uh, I love, yeah, I love his like sense of self preservation that is basically cowardice. Um, (laughs) And Din tells him, like, don't don't be such a baby. Go do it. This is your job. This is why you're here. This is why I brought you. Uh, And and I love that Grogu is like extra concerned about him. And yes. through the lens of Grogu, he's like, don't worry, he'll be fine. And if anything happens, like I'll go after him. Don't worry. And like, look, you can watch him on the monitor if you're so worried about him. Um, so he's he's not entirely cold and dismissive uh, to this droid, but he does, he, you know, understandably want it to do its job. Um, it uh, disappears. Uh, something happens to it. And so he has to go and, and try to rescue it. Um so he goes and he gets attacked by some Fraggle Rock goblins, is what I wrote down. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting because the Anzellan kind of give me Fraggle Rock, Fraggle Rock vibes. 
Okay. Yeah. Cause they live in a wall and they're yeah. like smaller. Yeah. Um, I just, I think Fraggle Rock came to mind just because like this, the, 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 they're called Alamites. Um, these, uh, maybe another, uh, analog would be more, Morlocks. Is it Morlocks from Land of from the Lost? From the Time Machine. Oh, from the or, Time Machine. That's what it's Yeah. From, actually, that's machine. so funny. I, um, I was, I jokingly referred to them as Morlocks when I was watching that episode. So yeah, I think that's a perfect analog. But just like the way that it's obviously dudes in rubber suits and they're not that, I'm trying to word this the right way. They're not that impressive looking from a, like the way they move and the way that they're, they're, they don't look real. They look like a Muppet. They look like a guy <laughs> with, a, with a Halloween mask on, but just like Grogu being tossed and Grogu waddling around, it's part of the charm. It's part of what makes it feel tangible and, and real. Well, I would you agree that guy or gal in a latex suit, a rubber suit, beats like fully digital any day? Hundred yeah, percent. Just especially like, with Star Wars, you can just like the human eye is trained to determine reality and fakeness. And uh, if something is just like a cartoon on screen, we're going to know it's wrong. So even if you can kind of see the zipper or the seams. Um, there's just something, something that knowing you could reach through the screen and touch that thing. That so I, I totally agree. Yeah, um, but Mando handles them because they are creatures on two legs, so no problem. <laughs> yes, that's the rule. A dozen of them. It doesn't. Yep, doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> and uh, so then he gets past those and he finds out. Oh, the air is actually breathable. Um, and so maybe everything. The, the the tale of Mandalore being poisoned and being uninhabitable, uh, maybe there's maybe that's wrong. Maybe we actually could live here. Um, so he goes back and he gets Grogu and puts him in his little floaty bubble. And <laughs> um, they start descending down deeper into the mines. Uh, they pass some glowy-eyed sewer dinosaurs with wings that are going to come back a little bit later. Um they, that uh, are really cool looking just from a design standpoint. Um, and then, oh, and then the my favorite creature of this entire show shows up. Uh, the General Grievous giant robo-scarab monster. <laughs> I don't know what to call it because it sadly also doesn't have a name in Wikipedia. General Grievous, I wrote down Grievous too because that was just, that. it felt very kind of that, cyborg part organic part mechanical um but i will i will hand the baton over to you i'd love to hear your thoughts because like you i love this design this is one of those this is one of those magical monsters that pops up in star wars like every five years or something like that it's just this is like a a immediate classic a hall of famer it's just it was super interesting super weird Super terrifying. Like I could, I could yeah, see you having nightmares about this thing. So, but yeah, tell me what your thoughts were. Okay, so I have so many thoughts about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll talk about what we see on screen, and then uh, I've I've done some deep dives and um, deep Wikipedia rabbit holes, and I have two competing theories. Um, oh. Not my theories, but like two competing theories that I subscribe to of okay. exactly what this thing is. Uh, and I'm curious, like, what your thoughts are on that. 
But let's talk about what we actually, what we actually see before we get into theories. So um, we see uh, Din just getting like springs like a trap, basically, a spring-loaded um, rat, rat trap, more or less, that closes in on him immediately before he has any chance to react um, and, you know, pins his arms against his chest so he can't, he can't get out of it. Uh, and it, this like spider thing, it, it's basically the stomach of it was the trap and it kind of flips over and just crawls away with him in its yeah. belly. Um, and then brings him to another chamber where there's a bunch of Mandalorian helmets uh, it's un it's unclear, but it's implied whether these Mandalorians died in the bombing and it's collected these helmets, or if these are like straggler Mandalorians that it has also trapped in this way. Um, it hooks him up to all these tubes that are draining some kind of fluid from him that almost looked like blood. I don't know if it's the tint of the color of the tubes themselves, but it almost looks like it's it, is it blood? Or That's funny you else? say that because I I I expected it to be blood, but it also and again it might be the tubes, but it looked it didn't it looked unlike blood in a way that made right. me think. Yeah. Well, then but then what is this? The Mandalorians have some kind of like fluid sack. That they, you know I don't know, but um, right. but yeah, keep going. <laughs> um. So that and like. And I even like I, I, this might be just me looking for these kinds of things, but even the thing that he plugs the tubes into is a little machine. I think it's a droid. Um, it almost looks like a like a single purpose droid that like almost ha like its gauges almost look like eyes. Um, something about it like like personified it for me. Uh, where I was like, oh, even this machine he's plugging. It might just be a machine and like the tube that collects this fluid. But it might be a droid whose purpose is just that, because there are a lot of examples of those in Star Wars. Um, yeah. These things that have like a Flintstones-esque existential uh, <laughs> uh, dread about just like, this is my entire existence. Huh? It's a living. Uh, <laughs> um, but Grogu kind of sees this from a distance. He crawls, uh, he crawls up and waits for the the, the smaller creature that crawls out of the bigger creature um that we see like has an organic eye so it's not just a droid it's some sort of cyber cyber organic uh uh blend of the two and it crawls away or it moves it goes away it takes this little like energy staff and goes away and grogu um waddles up to din and like tries you know tries to do whatever he can do and din tells him um uh, oh, because he makes a noise. He like tries to pull something with the force, and it makes a noise, and the creature's coming back. So Din tells him like, "Go find Bo. Go tell her where I am." Um, and Grogu escapes. Okay. So uh, Evan, have you seen uh, Solo, a Star Wars story? I have indeed. Okay. There. Do you remember? There's a scene where they go and visit. Uh, Paul Bettany, um, Dryden, Dryden Voss. Is that his name? Dryden Voss. He's like, uh, he's like, um, underworld boss, right? Something like that. Yeah. Like the black sun. He like runs the black sun or something That's like right. that. And there's like a scene where they're all at his compound or his castle. Um, and they're having like a party and like people are, you know, going around, um, uh, serving drinks and there's this creature that's singing 
it's in a, it's like, it's called a Galushian and it's in this jar of liquid and it has like a microphone in front of the jar and it's singing like to entertain at this party. Um, one of the theories of what this, this cyborg creature is, is that it's a Galushian. Uh, and it's very, this is very loose. Um, it's based entirely on the fact that it's the eye that the eyeball part of it that we see is like fully immersed in some kind of liquid. So we can surmise that whatever this creature is, it needs to be uh, immersed in liquid. Um, and if you look at a, if you look at like a Galushian on the Wikipedia entry, you can, if you squint, you can kind of see it like, okay, it could be this. Um, it could be one of like a thing that like general Grievous got damaged and had to replace a lot of its body parts with, um, mechanical parts. Um, so let's, let's pause there for a second. How do you feel about that? I, I only saw solo the once and I don't remember, I remember that scene, but not the creature. Um, I'm going to send you a link real quick so you can just like have a visual reference. My first, my gut instinct was that this is some new thing we've never seen before. But yes. I'm going to take a look at the image. That's the most likely um, that it's a new thing that we just haven't seen before. <laughs> that's that's uh, quite honestly the most the thing that makes the most sense and is probably what it is. Um, but the next theory that I'm going to throw at you uh, is completely wild, but I think it's also possible. But I, I want to hear your thoughts about the Galushian first. Oh, okay. The yeah, size, like ad, if, the size, size adds up. The overall size of the creature. Mm-hmm. They're the very small. Kind of, the like, um, the kind of leathery skin, the big eye, uh, the fact that it's like suspended in this like formaldehyde kind of solution. That's mm-hmm. as good a guess as any. I, I'd, I'd still, if I had to vote, I'd say no on this one. But it's not a okay. bad theory. Completely fair. My next, the next theory, again, I I can't say this is my theory, but the next theory, I think you're going to love this. (laughs) All right. Hit me with it. I know for sure that you know what a Dianoga is. Oh, of course. Oh, I didn't even make that connection. But it would have to be very damaged. Like only the end of the eye stalk intact. Yep. And I've got a theory for that. Okay. (laughs) Um, so this also calls back to um, the uh, from a certain point of view. Uh, I'm going to drop a link to to that book so people can like at least like read a summary of it um, or you know pick it up because it's a very entertaining read. Um, there's a there's there's a story in that about a Dianoga, the Dianoga that's on the Death Star uh, in the garbage mashers, um, the one that grabs Luke and. Yeah. Somebody like I I don't know the I don't know the author's name, but whoever wrote this short story, their entire purpose was to explain why this thing mysteriously lets Luke go for no good reason. Um, it grabs him and pulls him under the water, and then a few moments later, it just releases him, and who knows why? Um, I mean, the the real reason is probably because it it detected that the garbage mashers were being activated, and right. it didn't want to get crushed. But if you read this uh, story, it's because it was actually force sensitive. And it knew that Luke was uh, tapped into the force and had a great destiny. Um, And, you know, its entire purpose of it's okay. It's a whole thing. It it was on the Death Star. Uh, The Death Star got blown up by the rebels, by Luke. Um, 
But what if, what if a piece of the Death Star oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> had uh, this injured Dianoga in it and it grabbed, it lives in the garbage masher. So it has, you know, nothing but scrap metal and parts around it. Um, and so what if it like picked, you know, picked up parts, formed this mechanical body for itself so that it could survive and live on. Uh, and then, I don't know, somehow got a spaceship and piloted it to <laughs> the Mines of Mandalay. <laughs> okay, so I love I love that one. I love it. I wish it was true. Mm-hmm. I wish it was true. I, um, and that I, I'm, I'm kicking myself for not making that connection. I mean, the, the defining feature of that beast is that big eye with, with like the almost dripping flesh around it. Yep. Um, I love that theory. It's just, it's totally off, uh, off the rails and I love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a crazy theory <laughs> and there's nothing to support it. Um, whatsoever. <laughs> Other than but, the fact that like the eye. I guess like, is the, um, Dianoga, are they in the Star Wars canon, are they sentient? Or like, are they intelligent or are they just kind of mindless beasts? There is an answer to this. Let me see. Um, the only other time I've seen them, and I'm sure you played this game back on the N64, is Shadows of the Empire. There's mm-hmm. a, a chap late in the game, and you're playing Dash Rendar, a, kind of a heroic bounty hunter type you're on some planet and in the sewers and you run into a bunch of them. And then there's even like a, a mama Dianoga, like this giant, uh, a queen or, uh, uh, which is like the boss battle, which is just mammoth. I don't know if that's canon, but, uh, but they're kind of, their bodies have a lot of tendrils, like kind of a flat body with a lot of tendrils. And then this long eye stalk. Um, yeah. so yeah, if, if it was to be that one, it would, it would have to be severely damaged, but there's precedent. Grievous, most of Grievous's body was gone, replaced by metal. Darth Maul, um, you're yep. you're gonna Vader again, himself. Like, you probably know this just from like your knowledge of Star Wars, but you're gonna see it play out in the Clone Wars cartoon. Like Darth Maul uh, is sliced in half and <laughs> gets um, robot robotic spider legs at first, <laughs> and then robotic yeah. like regular legs. So you know, create. Equally, I won't say crazier, but equally crazy things have happened in Star Wars. Uh, According to Wikipedia, designation for Dinoga is non-sentient. And they're also classified as a cephalopod, which is appropriate. But but yeah, they're non-sentient. According to, from a certain point of view, they're definitely sentient and (laughs) force-sensitive. At least this one. But uh, okay. So thank you for going on that crazy tangent. Of course. Journey with me. I want it to be a Dianoga. It's we're probably never going to see this thing again. It gets killed by Bo. Um <laughs> but uh but it rules. It's great. Yeah, it's a highlight of the season, no doubt. Yeah. Um okay, so then so Grogu does he goes and he finds Bo and she's like, "Oh my gosh, you must be really impressive to, you know, pilot all the way by yourself and R5 just sitting there like, excuse me." <laughs> um and <laughs> she goes with him. She gets uh, they take her do, what's what's her ship's name? Do you know her ship's name? Cuz her ship is really cool too. Her ship is entirely badass, just like her. 
Um, and I don't know if I've seen that ship outside of Mandalorian uh, season three, but it's definitely an Imperial ship that I, I believe she got from Moff Gideon's cruiser. It's called the Gauntlet. Mm. Very cool. And it's got, it's just like the Lambda class shuttles in that it's got, well, a lot of actually Star Wars ships have like wings that either fold up or revolve down. So it's got that cool thing going for it. Um, yeah, it's just a badass ship. Yeah, which like again, it's just a cool visual thing, but like wings never really <laughs> matter in Star Wars. It's not like the the, the wings are what make them aerodynamic um, or <laughs> or make them maneuverable. Um, it's it's yeah. It, I think it's so that they can fit through different canyon uh, trenches and and evade things and not hit them. I think that's the like only the, reason that wings move and transform. Yeah. Well. I, in general, yes. There is that scene at the beginning of episode three when they're fighting the interceptors on Bo's planet. And the very last one, she does this badass maneuver where she like does a 180 and the 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 um the wings kind of like go in opposite directions to do that 180. So that's I think that's point. the first time I've I've actually ever seen a wing like do something practical. That's a really good point. That and the the Rogue Squadron, like Nintendo 64 game, where you can press a button to fold your X-Wings um, into, like, speed mode. That's right. Uh, or, like, into attack mode, where they're more spread out. Hmm. Um, okay, so, <laughs> so Bo, Bo follows uh, Grogu back down. Um, and on the way, she's like, oh, she says something interesting. She's like, you know, uh, I knew a lot of Jedi. Um uh I were and she's directly actually referring to Obi-Wan Kenobi and like a few other uh and Anakin actually and a few other Jedi um that she has adventures with. Um she uh gets into a little battle with the Alamites as well. Um the Fraggle Rock goblins come back and attack her, <laughs> and that's when we see her uh very cool um arm shield. That yes. we've we actually did see this once before in the the Return of the Mandalorian um, episode of Book of Boba Fett. Paz Vizsla has one of these that he uses in his like one on one battle uh, against against Din. Um, but it's just, it's such a cool feature. It's such a cool like action figure accessory. <laughs> she is she's just great, and I the 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 dual wielding pistols great the shield great just her sleekness and her fluidity and agility in battle um i hear sackoff did a quite a few of her own stunts but also want to put mm. a, throw a shout out to um all the stunt women who who d- did that role because when she's got the suit on and the helmet on and she's flying through flying through space shooting those blasters using that shield it's something to see um mm-hmm. she just honestly in this episode she and maybe this was intentional she kind of upstages Din. Uh, one, yeah. because she saves his life twice, but two, because she's just so... She fights so effortlessly in, ba- in, in battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she... Uh, she gets attacked by um, the Dianoga um, and the... And That's the not non-canon re- uh, viewers at home. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, you can you you can write into robos uh, robosbdinos at gmail with your theories of how this Dianogus survived uh, the Death Star or what else it might be. Um, but anyway, uh, Bo finds it. It attacks her. It it tries to trap her. She fights it off, um, and it has like this cool 
energy staff that like very much like Grievous and especially his um, his minions would always have yep. these like vibro spears um, and it attacks her, but she just like slices it and stabs it. And uh, oh, the, I forgot the cool. Okay. The coolest moment of that fight though, the coolest like Bo-Katan moment is um, she's on the ground. The, the, the dark saber is across the room and we've seen this shot so many times in Star Wars where a Jedi is separated from their lightsaber and they just reach their hand out and it comes right to them. The version that we see, the Mandalore version of that is she just like shoots her grappling line at it and pulls it right to her hand. But it's it's shot exactly the same way where it's like it's in focus. She's in the background. We just see her hand outstretch. Um, and I just thought that was like a cool visual reference. Yeah, I remember that. Just so badass. Uh, um, and then doesn't she do, do like the knee slide underneath and like cut its... Uh, um, I only wish maybe that fight was like 15, 20 seconds longer. I just wanted more of that. It was so good. Um, it just felt it was over a little too fast. Um, she like sliced the legs and at that point it's pretty much over. But uh, uh, it's such a badass scene, yeah. I'm I'm kind of with you on that where like a longer fight would be fun because it's so visually like cool and and um, there's so much going on. But on, on the other hand, like when somebody is a really skilled, capable sword fighter, it's kind of fun to watch them just like cut something down, something super intimidating that's been built up, and they're just like, yeah, slice, slice, slice. Um, you know, I know exactly. I've already analyzed your moves and I know exactly what I need to do to stop you in one counter. Um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a cool fight. Uh, sadly, our Dianoga friend dies. We see it. It's eye closing for the last time. Um, and, uh, so she, yeah, she rescues, uh, Din. Um, they continue down further. He's like, look, I'm, I'm not leaving. I don't care. Um, she is also surprised to find, you know, when he tells her like, oh, it's not, it, we can, uh, we can live down here. We can breathe down here. It's not, it's not poisoned. Um, and she's like, all right, well, you're not going to find the the living waters by yourself. So I guess I'm stuck with you. I guess, you know, you're uh, not going to, in order for me to rescue you, I have to indulge you on this ridiculousness. Um, and she makes uh, some pog soup. Um and talks about how what the Empire did to Mandalore was like more punishment than anything else. Um, she talks about he talks about her dad and or she, she sorry she talks about her dad um, and her like baptism and how she came and all of the all of the people came and watched the the print their princess recite the words and take the vow and all of these things and. Um, you know, but, but for her, it wasn't like a personal, uh, religious experience. It was just like this, I have to do this, these things I'm going through the motions. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, totally agree. She kind of focuses on the pop and circumstance of it and how it was just like a, a ritual to be done, a routine, uh, which obviously, um, is really well juxtaposed against Din Djarin's total faith in the process. Uh, in fact, you can kind of, Sackhoff plays it really well, where you can kind of tell she she's like begrudgingly impressed by his faithfulness 
you know, he's just so cannot be deterred. She keeps talking about the whole ritual in a flip in a kind of a, a flippant way. And he's just like zeroed in on this, on these waters. And that's all he cares about. And when he's, and then he recites the, the words that we see at the beginning of, of the first episode. Yeah. I, I, it's hard not to be overcome by that. Even if like us, the viewer and Bo, Bo-Katan don't buy into the, the, the religion of it all, but he does. And it's kind of infectious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they get to the edge of the waters and he uh, goes and he collects his little sample. <laughs> and then it's unclear to me exactly what happens next. Um, he just kind of goes under. And yeah. later he says he fell. The way he describes it is like, oh, yeah, when I when I fell, I saw, you know, whatever. Um, she's asking him, like, did you see something under the water? And he's like, no, I just, you know, saw um, I forget what he says exactly, but it, like he does, he doesn't confirm that he also saw the mythosaur. And furthermore, I I assumed the mythosaur grabbed him and pulled him in, but I don't think that's the case because he would have described it as something grabbed me, something pulled me under. But he just instead describes it as I fell. What do you make of that? I when he was when he fell, just having watched a lot of Star Wars. I thought he was pulled under by something because that's yeah. like, if you're in a body of water and you're in a star Wars show or movie, you're going to get pulled under by something. It's just, that's the way it goes. Um, but afterwards when Bo-Katan was describing the initial layout of that lake or uh, pool, it sounds like about where he fell in, it was just solid ground extending for a while. Like it was just this shallow pool, a ritual pool. And after the bombing, there were earthquakes and essentially it removed whatever man-made foundation was there and it just collapsed into this huge underground cavern. So I believe him when he said he would, it's like walking down some stairs and suddenly the stairs give out and he just fell into nothingness. Um, that's how I, he, I interpreted it. Did he lose his jetpack? Did he not have his jetpack at that point? Did the Di- Dianoga creature take it away from him? Because otherwise... How yeah. does he just fall and get knocked out? Like how, if he has his jet, we see uh Bo use hers underwater to go rescue right. him. So if he just like, oops, I stepped off a cliff or I ste- you know, I wasn't expecting this to be a, sh- a sharp drop off. Like, okay, but you have a jetpack, So you can, you know, maybe may, I get, I get that like your armor is really heavy. You're going to sink like a rock. Cool. That makes sense. But if he has, if he still had the jetpack on him, I don't see how he like fell so hard that he knocked himself out. That's a that's a fair point. I'm trying to remember. I think he did have the jetpack on, right? I think he put it on in the pog soup scene. But maybe he just fell so fast, got overwhelmed, banged his head on something, kind of got dizzy. Um, but are you, are you, are you, is your take that the mythosaur might be a more like aggressive than it seems, or like it it truly did pull him in? I don't. And he's know. not lying, maybe or. No, I don't think he's lying. Din, Din, um, I would say Din doesn't lie. I don't think he has, like, I don't think he's a deceptive person. I don't think he sees, like, deception as an honorable tactic. Um, And I don't think we've seen him lie to anybody about anything for any reason, um, even if it would benefit him. So I don't think he's lying. I, I, but I also don't think, like, I take it at face value that, his experience was not being grabbed. I think he would have mentioned that specifically if that was the case. So 
yeah, I think I think this scene is designed entirely to make it clear that like he had absolutely no view of the mythosaur at all, and only Bo had that experience herself. Um, which I don't know. It's it's interesting. Like, do you, do you do you think that she saw a mythosaur? Do you think like they they were showing us the audience what she was seeing, um, or do you think it was like she was having a vision? See that that's the one thing that is is unclear, and I I'm glad it's unclear, right? Because when when she first saw it and we saw her seeing it, I immediately was of two minds. I thought, oh, this they're gonna they're introducing this creature and it's gonna play some part in this season, or is she like, or is this a is this a vision that will kind of steer her back towards taking ownership of Mandalore? I if you know. Uh, put a blaster to my head, I would say it's real. She saw it and it inspired her and we're going to see it in full view in season four or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But, but, I, but, you know, she could be just, it could be a more spiritual moment for her. Where do you fall on that? I, I land on, she saw it. Um, she actually saw it. It was there, which calls into question, like why, why did it just leave Din alone? Why did it, um, you know, is, is the mythosaur a sentient thing? Is it, does it have, does it feel a spiritual connection to Mandalorians the same way, like they revere it as their, their sacred creature? Um, like, do they have that kind of avatar relationship with them where they like mind melt? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I hope so. I really want it to be that avatar two relationship because that would be so, so cool in the future seasons. Like, I don't know what they could do with this creature, but um, I hope that it is both sentient and has a kind of uh, affinity towards the people who grew up on that planet. I, uh, yeah. We'll see. It's still shrouded in mystery. Because the design of it is like big, ravenous, angry beast, yeah. like from a visual standpoint, but like, it doesn't, I don't think it attacks Bo. I don't think it's like chasing her. I don't think it's trying to eat her or eat or eat Din. Um, it's just kind of like observing. It's kind of just yeah. there and it's like, oh, some Mandalorians. Okay, hey, haven't had visitors <laughs> in a while. <laughs> yes, that's the vibe I got too. I'll go put on the kettle and then, oh, you're, oh, you're leaving? Oh, oh okay. Or it could uh, be like that line from um, um, Young Frankenstein. Uh, I was going to make espresso. um all right so that is uh chapter 18 the minds of mandalore do you have anything to say about that episode before we move on to the next one so that one as i was watching this in real time as they came out earlier this year the first episode i watched i'm like okay well they're setting up a lot of storylines so it's a crowded episode you know it didn't feel totally cohesive but that's okay this one felt this for the first time signaled to me Oh, this season's a little different in that it's going to be more of a journey, more of a serial, you know, because this felt like part one of a larger story um, that would be resolved later on. And um, yeah, so uh, both of these were kind of, I, I, I think I value them around the same kind of a, a decent episode, but didn't blow me away. Okay. Apart um, from the Dianoga ish beast because that is something that will stay in my memory for a long time Mm -hmm. um 
All right. So then uh, that brings us to our third and final episode for that we're going to talk about today. Um, season three, episode three, chapter 19, The Convert. Uh, this episode is sort of an episode of The Mandalorian. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. At least the, the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes of it. Uh, but the rest of it is, um, uh, I don't know, Star Wars... Uh, Star Wars, the 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 intern years. Star Wars, the I don't know. We I don't know what you'd call this show if it had its own spinoff. But um, this episode heavily features Katie O'Brien and Omid Abtahi, um, <laughs> who are Doctor Pershing and uh, uh, he Ellie Ellie Alia Kane Alia Alia Kane yeah Alia Kane. Um, or also known as L52 and G68. Um, this is, I love this episode. I know, I, I think you and I feel a little bit differently about it, um, but I will, we'll find out in, through conversation. But I, I think this is a great episode of Star Wars media. I don't know that it's a great episode of The Mandalorian, but I do think it's a great story, a great short self-contained story that's told. Um, I kind of want to get, actually, I kind of want to get all of the Mandalorian stuff, the first and last 10 minutes out of the way. So we could talk about the meat of the episode. That um, seems fair. So the, the brief, like checking back in with the Mandalorians in this episode is that at the beginning of the episode, it starts right where we left off, um, right after Bo pulled him out of the water and they're talking to each other. This is kind of where they talk about, like, oh, did you see something down there? And he's like, no, I, you know, I just saw I fell and I saw that. And uh, he, yeah, they get back. Actually, this is a really cool sequence. When they go back to um, Kalevala and there's some TIE interceptors. Uh, again, there's like six of them. Um, and they have a really cool dogfight. Um uh, yeah, it's great. Mando's like, drop me off at the N1 and I'll, I'll back you up. And she just like literally just drops him out of the cargo hatch and he <laughs> jumps down, nearly gets sideswiped by one of the interceptors. Um, one of them almost like takes him out on the platform and he jumps in at the last second and escapes. Um, and just the way they like systematically take these interceptors down one by one is awesome. The way they, they work together as like co-pilot, not co-pilots, but uh peer pilots i don't know um yeah they have great the, chemistry in battle for sure a, a squadron of two let's say uh they're fantastic and they work really well together they take them down but then uh the, the bombers show up hmm. and they just absolutely devastate um kree's castle uh uh bo gets another great like star wars slang those mud scuffers bombed my home um and they, she tries to, she tries to like one, one on one or one on several, yes. um, this entire small fleet. And, uh, Din has to, has to rush in and be like, no, 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 let's, let's get out of here. You can't take them all on. You're by yourself. Um, and that's pretty much the cold open. And then it cuts to like the title, the Mandalorian, and then it goes to Coruscant where we are for most of the rest of the episode. Mm -hmm. Um, they do come back something about the living waters. I don't know. Well, yeah. Yeah. After the Coruscant 
part is complete, they cut back to the covert and um, Paz is reluctant to let Dinjarin come back, but he insists he's been he's bathed in the living waters. He proves That's as much to the armorer, and the armorer, um, played exquisitely by Emily Swallow, um, uh, welcomes him back after testing the waters, says he is a Mandalorian once more, and also, surprisingly, welcomes Bo-Katan into the fold, because technically she's bathed in the waters after saving Din and has not yet removed her helmet. So she's part of the group, too, uh, which I'm sure she has very conflicted emotions about. And then that I think that ends with her staring at a sculpture of the mythosaur uh mm-hmm. and setting up setting the stage for things to come uh yeah so that's where that's where i struggle the most actually with the um like the man the 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 covert especially the armorers uh the death watch mandalorians being a cult um <laughs> and like the religious aspect of it because they're so dismissive of Bo, especially Paz. Like, they're so dismissive of her. They're like, you don't even walk the way. You're not really a Mandalorian. But then as soon as the armorer qualifies her with those two questions, they love bomb her. They all come up and they're all like patting her on the back. And they're like, welcome, you're one of us. This is so great. And it's, I don't know, it's something about that is like unsettling that, um, you know, we, we, we don't accept you unless you 100% buy into our rules and our way of life. Um, but then the moment you do, it's like a complete reversal and like, um, it's very, it's very manipulative. I think that's fair. And also, and this is something that goes throughout the whole season there. Part of what I like, well, I dislike from like a personal approach, but I like from an artistic approach is, I like how black and white it is and how inflexible um, the Death Watch contingent is um, because it just makes them interesting. It makes them flawed, which means they're interesting. But in this season, and I'd love your take on it, it felt like a lot of these, if these are years, right? Decades of strife between these cults, these sects, these departments these contingents and they welcome in Bo as Bo-Katan as soon as she's she's been baptized born again let's say as long as she wears the helmet but then it's only and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves but it's only a couple episodes later where the armor is like you know what take off your helmet you can lead us all we'll, we'll all join mm-hmm. you and I'm like wait th- this needs to be earned over like a season or more like it just felt um it felt like these two groups came together so easily. It should have been so hard for them to, to get under the same banner to reclaim Mandalore. Um, it just felt not so much earned. So I think this season played a little fast and loose with the allegiances and how easily they could forget years of strife and indoctrination. When it's suddenly convenient for them to do so. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, it, it's in terms of storytelling and character development, it's really well done. Um, you see Bo with like, with her mask on, you see her thought process, like in that moment. Isn't that amazing? It's so well, it's, it's How the show does that. There, there's, yeah. um, do you remember, I'm sure, well, I'm sure you remember it's season two. 
they Dinjarin and Grogu go to that planet. It's that scene where Grogu is like uh, he's on that flat stone and he's uh, meditating. Right, that mm-hmm. adorable scene of Grogu with his like fingers turned, and um, that's this. That's the episode where I think Moff Gideon's forces show up in the atmosphere and they blow up the Razor Crest. Mm-hmm. And there's this scene where the Razor Crest is just blown up into smithereens, and it cuts to Din Djarin with his helmet on, staring at the aftermath, and you could just see his pain through the through the mask. It's amazing what this show can do at conveying human emotions through a sheet of metal. I, I don't know how they do it, but it's remarkable. Yeah, it's a lot of, like, just the body language and also, like, the like they do a lot with the camera to help you out with that, too. Like, just the very slow zoom in and stuff like that. Um, it's it's sure. masterful. It's absolutely yeah. masterful. Um, so that's, okay, so that's everything I have to say about the, like, Mandalorian parts of this episode of The Mandalorian. <laughs> uh, do you have anything else? Uh, no, I mean, I, those first 10 minutes, I loved, uh, loved the, the space battle or the, the, the air battle, I should say. I love that maneuver that Bo-Katan does where she flips, she kind of kills the engine and flips the wings. And there's yeah. that scene where she's like weightless. I think R5 even like, uh, is like hovering weightless inside the ship. Um, and then she regains control and before it crashes into the ocean. So just really cool flying, really cool, high octane fighting. And then Din, the end, even... Oh, go ahead. Din gets a similar kill, too, where he, like, flies up into the atmosphere, flips his ship around, and, like, flies straight into his enemy. Yeah, it's like something you'd see at an air show. Like, he went up uh, in, like, a biplane or something, like, killed the engine. He, like, went into free fall and fired, like, a, a proton uh, missile or something into the interceptor. Very badass, yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm using the word badass a lot, but that is the Mandalorian. It's a lot of badassery. <laughs> Uh, you were going to say something about the end of that? Oh, and then the ending, even though it did feel a bit manipulative or maybe contrived or something, um, there was it, it was felt kind of like a homecoming, and I kind of I kind of like that. Uh, seeing the Mandalorians like as a single unit is cool, even if it felt a bit um, contrived. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get into this more in the in the upcoming episodes, but I love the fact that like none, no two of them have the same armor. They're yes. all like piecemeal. It's very and, it, and yeah, it's a visual for sh- showing like how they have cobbled together an existence post you know uh, post destruction of Mandalore. And like unlike the like yes, it's a u it's a uniform, but it's not like a rigid. Everybody looks exactly the same uniform. It's just like you have these pieces of armor, and you have like these these. Yeah, it's it's just a, it's a it's a cool little like visual detail. Um, all right, so then the proper episode, the real episode, uh, starts with Doctor Pershing giving a TED talk about uh, cloning and his, yes. his work. That is that um, is it. <laughs> and how uh, you know he he did some like even though he was um, it, the empire was funding it. He was doing really important work. And he talks about like how he has, why he's so passionate about it. And that his mother died of, I think like heart failure and, you know, with modern medicine and with the things he was researching, um, he's like, he's fully confident. People don't have to die that way. We have the technology, we have the research. Um, if I'm allowed to continue working on this, like we could save countless lives um, with the medical advances that, 
cloning makes possible as long as we use it ethically. Um, I, I kind of thought they were setting up more of, of like the moral ethics of cloning and mm. that there was going to be maybe more of a discussion about that. It kind of plays out like that aspect of this plays out a lot more with like the Moff Gideon stuff in later episodes, but not, not on like as much of a philosophical level as I was expecting from what they were setting up. Um, this more really goes into, I think the main highlight of what this episode is conveying is how is the new Republic so inept that they allowed the first order to be formed in the first place? Like how did they not learn their lessons um, from fighting and stopping the empire uh, to the point where they, will allow the second empire to come back. Um, and this this episode, I, I would argue, does a fantastic job of showing the slow descent into complacency that allowed that to happen. Um, it starts with just like showing these citizens of Coruscant, they're, um, they're talking to, to Dr. Pershing, they're like, oh my gosh, that was so great. Um, you are so brave for what you survived. And one of them says like, oh, you know, I was almost uh, conscripted. Can you imagine me fighting? And I think it's like his wife is like, dear, that was, um, that was, uh, what was she's like? That wasn't, you know, that was not the Republic. That was the empire or vice versa. And he's like, empire, rebels, new Republic. I can't keep track. We try not to get involved. Um, and just so like that apathy that people have about like these events of two Death Stars uh, <laughs> popping up and being destroyed by the rebel factions happened a decade ago, like not very long ago. And to these people, they're just like, well, it's, you know, it's just politics. It's war. We don't we have this cushy life here and we're far away. From, we're very far removed from the actual conflict. And um, so we can afford not to care about this. Um, and that, yeah, that, yeah, that I definitely, yeah, I think we're, we're definitely aligned on the premise of this episode. The material in this is really great stuff. It really fills in some gaps. And, um, I think my issue was with the execution. Like I, I love this idea on paper, but even that scene with the socialites, the socialites, um, where they're very disconnected from reality and they're, you know, obviously rich and, and, um, and can't really be bothered about the politics of Coruscant uh, when in, you know, in a few short years, it's going to, you know, could be in their lives. So I, it just, um, some of the staging uh, and the acting in that scene was a little off. Actually, this whole episode felt a little off to me. It kind of started, I think what, 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 um, the catalyst for this podcast episode was me texting you being like, does this season feel a little off? And I texted you, I think it was after season episode four or five, but it was the germ of that thought was, was here. Um, It just, well, there's a lot to talk about. I totally agree. And there are some lines and some visuals in this that really hammered home that this, this episode shows how the new Republic kind of failed itself. Uh, so again, yeah, I love I love this premise. I just didn't love some of the acting and the uh, um, the pacing of it. But but uh, I'll I'll kick it back to you. Well, so one of the biggest biggest problems is the New Republic. They won and they quickly just formed into a bureaucracy, and mm-hmm. they're all of that bureaucracy is is 
how they like let things slip through the cracks. Um, they started, they did exactly the same thing that America did after World War II, where they created an amnesty program because um, the some of the research, some of the medical research that the Nazis were doing during World War II was valuable research to the medical community in terms of like new techniques of surgery and type, you know, different types of medicine. And, um, and it's, it has, I, it, I, I can't like leave it on the table without mentioning like that research came from doing unethical uh, experiments on, on human test subjects. Um without limitations. But America saw like, well, you know, we can take, we can take the silver lining from that, from that cloud. And we'll take those scientists and those researchers that were Nazis and were working for the Nazis and we'll just like bring them to America and have them, um, you know, give us that research and we'll apply it ethically to things. But I don't know. I, I don't want to get too down into like my conspiracy theory rabbit holes, but that's part of the reason why uh, I think there's a lot of neo-Nazism today. I think that um, we literally employed former Nazis to work in within the CIA, and a lot of them climbed the ranks of the CIA back in the, in the 50s and 60s. Um, and a lot of that, their ethos and philosophy has somehow survived into modern times. And we literally have neo-Nazis like marching and demonstrating in, in, around America today, uh, which is disturbing. So there's a direct parallel to the empire. Uh, they're basically state, space Nazis. And this amnesty program, while um, being it is ambitious and it is perhaps morally, maybe morally ambitious is I think where I'll leave it, um, it's extremely flawed. Uh, they, they, for one thing, they just put all of them, they seem to put all these amnesty, um, what are they called? Like student interns, basically, uh, yeah. in, in like a dorm all together. Bad idea. You don't yeah. want these people congregating and sharing their ideas. Just that little conversation they have about like, oh, is there things you miss? And like, they're talking about innocuous things like the yellow right. travel biscuits um, and whatnot. But I don't know, having them all like be able to gather and congregate uh, these former empire soldiers um, and sympathizers. That's just, you're just, you, 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 the new Republic came from being small splinter cells of rebels that like banded together and created cells and like hid out. You're allowing, you're creating an atmosphere where you're allowing the empire to sort of become the new rebel faction. And that's really the way that they're, 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 um, presenting this entire, I think, saga to us, like of the, of the first order in the new republic. It's a reversal of the original trilogy where the new republic is the established quote unquote empire. They're the government in charge. And the, the way that the first order comes back. Um, especially when we see that like shadow collective later mm. um, is through splinter cells. It's through small like groups that are hiding out on these remote planets or, or, or like in some cases hiding out right under the noses of the new Republic. Um, it's just, it's just a series of cascading mistakes that they make by not monitoring these people. Yeah. The biggest one, the biggest glaring example of that being the end of the episode Um so can you explain to me how uh, Dr. Pershing 
gets he's in this in this amnesty program and he gets relegated to like data entry basically like we have these parts from like scrapped imperial um war war machines and your job is just to like catalog and like put things into this system and then we dispose of all of it um but katie o'brien's care like kane uh, who worked, it is established, worked directly for Moff Gideon. They both worked yes. on his ship, on his crew. She is put into such a high position of trust and power immediately. Like, she is able to, like, command troops. And she, at the end of the episode, is left alone in a room with sensitive equipment that's being used to recondition the mind of a, of a prisoner, essentially. Yeah. Like it's it boggles the mind that they would trust a space Nazi, a former space Nazi. Well, current. Well, she is still a current space Nazi. We're we're gonna find out all of her deception is a is a big ruse. Um, but the fact that they just they they let their guard down so much around this one particular space Nazi, and it bites them in the ass so hard. Yeah, that's that's a really eloquent way to put all of that. It, the to jump back to 2015, is that when The Force Awakens came out? That sounds so right. I, um, so obviously, the, I mean, I, I actually really enjoy The Force Awakens, despite its mm-hmm. biggest flaw, which is it's kind of a retelling of Episode Four, right? It hits some Also, of the, its biggest strength, arguably. Right. I mean, that's why I think I enjoy it so much, because it's got the wizard, it's got the rogue, it's, you know, it's got yeah. the archetypes. Um, but one thing that bothered me continues to bother me is the size and the strength of the first order Mm -hmm. this this show has helped justify and explain some of that i still i'd love your take on this my vision if i was writing episode seven i would have made the first order kind of a kind of how you like kind of a new rebellion basically more of like a terrorist organization that didn't have a lot didn't have the symmetrical strength of the republic which it does kind of in the force awakens i'm still unsure how it built that planet that planet destroying laser embedded in another planet. It would have made more sense if they were like bombing things on Coruscant. And because Mm -hmm. the Republic got kind of lost focus and became sort of authoritarian itself. Right. Um, So I wish they had done that, but this, even, even with the way it is, this episode helps explain kind of the, 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 the rise of like a post-imperial fascism. So I'm grateful for that. Um, it's, I lost my train of thought here. We're talking about the first order. Um, you're saying like the size and the scale of the first order. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, I wanted to get your take on that. Would you have, would you have appreciated the sequel trilogy more if the first order had been more like an imperial rebellion? Like it was making small strikes, asymmetrical strikes, uh, and then maybe somehow it obtained like a weapon of mass destruction. And that's how it was able to, even the field the intro of this like planet-sized turbo laser that can destroy several other planets was a bit of a leap even for me yeah i i kind of i would have appreciated if it was uh like a full reversal of that where like the new republic is creating some sort of maybe not super weapon but some sort of technology um and the empire's mission the the first order's mission um is like a group of scrappy imperial rebels that need to hijack this this piece this new technology that the new republic has built and repurpose it into a weapon that they then like use to gain the upper hand the the only the only downside to that 
Um, and, and the reason why I think they made the right choice with the way they did it is when you think Star Wars, you think stormtroopers, you know, you think like uh, blaster rifles and like uh, Star Destroyers specifically. And so the first or the bad guys kind of need to have those things, right? Um, like, I guess episode one, The Phantom Menace did without any of those things just fine. But then episode two very quickly brought us amalgams of the or, uh, analogs of those things. Um, so, yeah, I do think on some level it needed that, but I don't know how you get there <laughs> in uh, when there's like a 30 year gap between episode six and seven. Um, but I don't know this. The New Republic is. Uh, the episodes with um, God, I really should figure out his name. Well, he's gonna he's oh, gonna pop X-wing up. In pilot? The next, yeah, the X wing pilot. I know, he's I gonna pop too. up in the next few episodes. So we're gonna we're gonna get his name then. But the episodes with him and like what he's dealing with, and like when they show Tim Meadows um, being kind of casually inept, yeah. like that is, I think, excellent world building, and it and it and it helps me reconcile the the disconnect of like how on earth can they make such a huge mistake and allow them to create yet another Death Star? Oh, that's what I was going to say. Thank you for triggering my memory. When I lost my train of thought, I want to take a step back. A lot of these new Star Wars shows have done a tremendous job filling in the gaps that are left behind by other filmmakers and also rehabilitating a few things. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I think Kenobi's greatest gift to us was the rehabilitation of Anakin Skywalker. And Darth Vader, mm-hmm. he became a just more rounded character, a more vulnerable character, an eviler character at the same time, a scarier character. He they made Vader scary again, and so mm-hmm. I'm really grateful to Kenobi for that, and I'm grateful for the Mandalorian for bridging the gap between the New Republic and the First Order. Even though, again, I feel like the execution was a little sloppy in this episode. the The template itself, the, the, the I like the story more than I like the teleplay. To, to sum it up, I guess. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the broad stroke. They're good at broad strokes. Um, and then things like this, like, like you know, episodic series can add a little more detail to those broad strokes. Um, yeah. Which, which were, it works well if you're a completionist. If you're the other type of fan that, you know, doesn't watch WandaVision, doesn't watch every episode right. of Andor or Boba Fett, um, yeah, you might be missing out on these things, but maybe you don't care as much. You know, if you're that type of fan, and that's I think that's fair. Yeah, there there is one line I wanted to touch on. I'm sure you made a note of it too, and it really reinforces your take, which I think is spot on about how how there wasn't much of a shift or a difference between the New Republic and the Empire. I mean, obviously there was, um, but in terms of kind of the logistics of its governing government, um, they're they're in that plaza right before they visit that mountain on the uh, Coruscant the, and the peak of Umate, my favorite yes. bit of world building in the episode. Yeah. And there, and Aliyah says, Oh no. Um, let me see. Dr. Pershing says something like, has it changed a lot? And Elias says, not much has changed apart from taking down the cog wheels. My favorite yep. line in the episode. And that sums up exactly what you just said in that like Coruscant remains pretty much the same. It's got this like, affluent upper class that is totally out of touch and unhelpful it's got the bureaucracy it's got the military the only thing that has changed is the imperial cogwheels i've never heard them refer to them as that and i love it they're down and like the the insignia of the new republic is up 
and uh, love that line. And that, that, that really speaks to the problems of the transition and, and how it allowed that first order to fester. I kind of stumbled upon something in my, like my deep dive on the Dianoga um, research, the <laughs> something about like the origin of the Imperial crest. Um, uh, I'm not going to be able to find it quickly, but um, you, you, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with like the old Republic era and you've probably played like the Bioware Knights of the old Republic game. Oh, one of the best games, Star Wars games. So, yeah. so like that between that, the prequels, the original trilogy, and then the sequel era, it illustrates exactly what you're talking about. the The Imperial Signal, Signa, Signia, uh, was originally like somebody else's insignia, and it was like the number of spokes was significant, and then the fact that um, when Sheev Palpatine adopted that symbol for for the Empire, he removed two of the spokes. I, I, listeners, if you're like going crazy, like yelling at your your phone because I can't, I don't know the name of this person. Um, please write in and fill in that gap for us. But it's, but it's almost exactly like what the Nazis did. The Nazis took the Buddhist imagery of the swastika and like literally just turned it to a different angle. Uh, and now it now it has become this sinister symbol. Um, but also like in those old Republic games, you would have ships that look like a star destroyer and. Uh, troopers wearing armor that resembles stormtrooper armor, but they're an entirely different faction from what the Empire becomes later. In the prequel movies, it's the uh, is it the Galact the Galactic Republic is the like the uh, clone it's army? the Galactic Empire, but the Republic does it have a, a fancier name? I'm not sure. Uh, whatever it is, the yeah. <laughs> the Republic. Yeah. Uh, the prequel, the prequel era Republic, they had the Star Destroyer looking ships. They had the um, Stormtrooper looking, you know, armor. Yeah. Um, and then it just that got co-opted to the other side, the enemy, the bad guys in in the the original trilogy. Um, and so now, yeah, that's like like yeah, everything's the, it's the same, just with a new coat of paint. It's everything's like nothing much has changed, just the cog. They brought down the Imperial cogs, but everything else is just. Business as usual. Yeah, it's a great line. Um, I, and I have to laugh at Sheev. I, I mean, they could have picked a better name. For, I mean, it's like the biggest, baddest, big, evil, bad guy in the universe named Sheev. It's just, that was, that was a swing and a miss. <laughs> there's a quote, um, there's a quote by uh, uh, DJ, DJ from The Last Jedi. Mm. Um, he says, uh, they blow you up today, you blow them up tomorrow. It's just business. Yeah, that's actually that's um, there's a lot of Last Jedi has some flaws, some brilliant parts. Its theming, its theme work is really brilliant. There's just a lot there embedded in there. Um, one of the more thematically rich movies in the saga for sure. Yeah, um, I do. I love everything about Coruscant. Uh, the like so so at one point there's. Um, like uh, I think I think Pershing is like in his room by himself, and he's like listening to a hollow cron or watching a hollow vid. I don't know what the right word is for it. Um, <laughs> and there's this like this woman talking about uh, like factoids about Coruscant, and the only part of it that I caught that I wrote down was um, Coruscant is one of a handful of city planets known as an ecumenopolis. 
um, which is a cool word. And it just instantly like, oh, I don't know. I've never heard that word, but I know what you mean. I get what you're talking yeah. about. Um, they talk about when they see this, this peak of Umate, uh, it's the peak of a mountain. And um, Aliyah describes it as it's the only place on the surface that you can see the planet itself. This entire planet is just buildings and this like Blade Runner city. Um, it's they literally in 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 universe refer to it as a city planet, and it's one of many city planets. Um, just like the implication of, you know, the in in like leaning into industrialism and just going so far away from nature itself. Um, and that's always been a theme of Star Wars, like the Jedi are in tune with nature and they shun personal possessions and whatnot. Uh, and then the, the empire is all about like material things and wealth and power. Um, and that's just represented here on Coruscant where like the people, the citizens, uh, this planet and its citizens represent that mindset of like opulence. And, you know, we don't, we don't really care except on a surface level. Um, it's, it's just, everything is like built and designed for our comfort and convenience, um, and not for, uh, the galactic community at large, you know? So I have mixed feelings about Coruscant. I, I actually, I dislike spending time there and it's because it reminds me of the prequel trilogy, which is just Mm. kind of a sour, leaves a sour taste in my mouth. Um, (laughs) uh, So every time they're like zooming around in those traffic lanes or on the planet surface, I'm just thinking of like some of the bad CGI of the prequel. So it's my own baggage I'm bringing to it. The other thing that that bothers me about Coruscant being in The Mandalorian is that, again, what drew me to The Mandalorian is its distance from Star Wars, its distance from the Skywalkers and the Solos, and its its focus on the Outer Rim. So every time they go to like the center of the universe, not the exact center, according to that hollow vid, mm-hmm. I'm just like I just I want to see the smugglers and the criminals in the underworld of the Outer Rim. And now again, this is my own kind of baggage, but um, that's another reason why this episode didn't speak to me so strongly uh because i just wanted to be a navarro and see what's going on there as opposed to coruscant um but the story being told here is an important one and it does rehabilitate the the first order for me for sure well i I think i agree with you on some level but i think i think it's good that we get um a variety of things we get navarro we get a little a glimpse of tatooine but we also get this like this blade runner city planet um with you know flying cars and whatnot um, oh, speaking of blade, glowing. Oh, sorry popsicles. to cut you off. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> popsicles. That was that was interesting. Uh, the Blade Runner analogy is a good one. Didn't you get a little Blade Runner twenty forty nine vibes when Pershing is talking to the droid, and the droid's asking him how his experience is? It's kind of like that scene with Ryan Gosling where they're determining if he's still focused and um, that kind of replicant testing. Yeah, the Bader Bader Meinhof test is that right? Or no, that's, that's a real not, thing. It's um, oh, yeah. What is it called? I should know this because I just reviewed Voigtkampf Voigtkampf okay. test. Yeah, um, yeah, very much so. Like just this bureaucratic uh, therapy bot that's just like asking yeah, these static I, I really, questions. I like that. 
Yep. It's, I think that bot is a, that droid is a perfect example of why, of how bad the new Republic has fucked up. Like mm-hmm. the fact that they are relying on something like this, like, yeah, that's good enough. That's a patch. Um, that will solve our problems. That will, that we will trust this droid to rehabilitate these uh, space Nazis um, and check in with them. <laughs> yeah. and not like a human. I don't know. Not, well, human is reductive. A, a sentient creature that you know can't i don't know it's foolish um the another bit of another thing they mention is that uh there's a trillion over a trillion residents on coruscant which is just mind a mind-blowing number yeah um and uh yeah so i i also i love the way that like this is a, a, why this episode really needs to be self-contained and like it's good that they, you know, separate it from the Mandalorian stuff and rather than like cutting back to it and having it cut back and forth between the two stories, um, just the way that it really puts you in uh, Dr. Pershing's kind of mindset and um, him like the repeated visits to this therapy bot and his gradual frustration and I... I wonder how you feel about that. I want to ask how you feel about it. I genuinely believe Dr. Pershing when he's talking about like wanting to do good. And, you know, he wasn't, he didn't really believe in what the empire was doing. It was for him. It was just a means to an end of like having access to research so that he could do good things for people. Um, I, he's still a space Nazi, but I do, I think I like genuinely believe him that he's trying, he's making an effort to be rehabilitated. He's making an effort to do good for who he sees as the good guys. Now the new Republic. Um, what do you think? Do you think it's a ruse or do you do believe him? No, no, I, I do believe him. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if it's, and it's Omid Abtahi who played Dr. Pershing and it's Katie Mm -hmm. O'Brien who played Elia Kane. Their performances just didn't work for me, and their chemistry didn't work for mm. me. I, I definitely believed in Doctor Pershing, and that, and that kind of that tender story about his mother. He's motivated by this emotional impact. Like his life was destroyed because his planet, his people didn't have access to cloning technologies. He believes in that. We saw him being protective of Grogu in earlier seasons when Gideon just wanted to use him as a test subject. So, I believe in him. I just. His character, his performance, I just didn't buy into it. So at the end, when you had like his he his his is a tragic tale, right? He he was a little naive. He believed in Elia. Uh, he wanted to pursue research to to make people's lives better. He wanted to to find his place in the New Republic. And then he's just his whole life is extinguished by Elia. It's this really tragic thing. But when she's doing that. At the end, when he's powerless and she turns the dial, I didn't really feel much because I didn't have much of a connection to him or really even a connection to her. There is that deliciously evil last scene where she bites into the biscuit right after mm. she's white. And I'm like, oh. But but I watched that in this kind of clinical way, being like, oh, yes, clinically, academically, I know this scene, this framing and that shot is really evil and awesome. But I didn't have the emotional reaction to it because I don't really care about her. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's me or if the show didn't do a good a good enough job making me care about Pershing or Kane. Um, I also wish there was more of a sexual chemistry between them, like a romantic chemistry. They kind of hinted that, 
but they did kind of hint at it. I thought it was going in that direction too yeah. for a bit. Like when she gifted him the box of, of the biscuits and then she like takes them out to like get yeah. a, a glow in the dark popsicle and like see <laughs> yeah. like the street magic. Um, yeah. I, I kind of thought like she, I mean, she is um, seducing him in a way she is like, but I think in like a friendship way, I don't think there, I don't think ultimately that there is a romantic connection between them, but I was kind of hoping uh, part of me was hoping like, oh, I wonder if they're taking in that direction. That'd be that would be interesting. I would watch that. I would be here for that. Um, There's a, a weird. Isn't there a weird lack of sexuality in Star Wars? Like, uh, I mean, obviously, you've got Han and Leia, really juicy stuff, especially in Empire. That scene when they're uh, she's he's holding her hands and she's kind of like, you know, um, but like the whole Jedi Order entirely sexless, like they will not they can't even get married. They can't even mm-hmm. go on a date. Right, like Anakin, and you could argue Anakin's turn of the dark side is in part because of how suffocating it is when it comes to romantic relationships, and then, um, and then even in the Mandalorian, there's just like there's just not a lot of heat um, mm-hmm. in general in Star Wars. It's kind of absent. The chemistry, the, the chemistry that we see between um, just Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher is like so it's so electric on screen. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't think we really see that again until maybe like uh, Poe and Finn, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> um, but they, they, they're again, they're cowards, and they're too. Sh- they won't. They, they refuse to explore that dynamic uh, to its logical conclusion. Um, um, speaking of, yeah, the I think you're right. Trilogy, speaking of the, um, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole because I, I know we're deep into episode three here, but. Um, I guess it kind of exists between Ben, Ben Solo, Kylo Ren, and Ray, that mm. they've got a bit of a heat going, especially in the rise of Skywalker, which is something I wish they'd explored more because the idea of a hero and a villain being on opposite sides but being attracted to each other is like there's so much to mine there, so much potential. Yeah. I wish they had done more with that. I wish they'd just done more with Ray and Kylo Ren in general, but that's a story for another podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they had the heat, but not the chemistry. Mm. I, do, I do like all of the like the little conversations between um, between them and between the the other members of the amnesty program. Um, also, okay, so this is just another thing. Like, just a, from a broad view, putting putting these uh, space Nazis into this program and giving them a a like a number designation. L, you're, you are, you don't, we don't refer to you by your name anymore. You are L52 or you are G68. Huge mistake. From a PSYOP level, huge mistake. If, if you want to breed resentment in these people and mm-hmm. and uh, have them foment a, a small splinter cell of rebellion, this is the perfect way to do it. Take away their humanity um, and <laughs> take literally take their name away from them. Yeah, that's fair. That's really fair. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Beth and I were just watching a, a show, a documentary on the San Diego Zoo, and they have so many zebras in their safari park that they stopped giving them names. They just give them numbers. It's the same thing. Like you're treating them like a, a an endangered species to be fed and kept alive. Like, yeah, and the zebras are. It's only a matter of time before they rise <laughs> up and destroy the Death Star, uh, or or build another Death Star. Um, <laughs> uh, so they. Um, 
Yeah, they they have this conversation. Uh, Aliyah and and Penn is this person, Penn Pershing, uh, about he's like I de- you know I desperately want to do good. I really want to get back to my research. I I'm convinced that you know if I was just a la- if if I could convince the New Republic to see the benefit of it, um, that it would help the Republic itself and it would therefore help a lot of people. And she's like, all right, well I know I have connections and I have the means to get you what you need. Um, so tells him about this scrapyard. Uh, where they can go and get like a mobile lab um, and all the equipment that he'll need to continue his work. And I, this bothered me a lot until I watched it again. They sneak onto the train uh, rather than just buying a ticket. And I was like, why on earth, if you're already going to commit a crime and you're trying to be sneaky about it, why would you commit another crime that can easily get you caught by just not buying a ticket for the train? Did that did that strike you as odd? The, on the rewatch, it bothered me even more. The whole train scene bothers me a lot. Uh, one because like they just treated it so yeah, like you said, um, they just made themselves more of a target in sneaking on. But two, it really bothered me when those uh, uh, talking about droids with only a single purpose. You had those ticket checker droids coming through yep. the the train cars, and they're like, "Oh, we don't want to get spotted." So they started moving backwards through the train. And in every car they went into, all of the citizens of Coruscant stopped what they were doing, put down the, and looked up. And I turned to Beth and I'm like, anyone who's ever been on the subway in Manhattan, like mm-hmm. someone could ju- someone could get onto the train with a boombox blaring, you know, uh, m- music, uh, wearing a chicken suit. Someone would look up, look immediately down, back down at their paper. Like it's, this is the city of tr- three trillion people and they're paying attention to two normal looking people walking through a train car. That bothers you're describing an, an exact scenario that I experience on my way to work, like at least I'd say <laughs> twice a month. I literally like I've had mornings where I'm just like reading a book and I look up and oh, there's a full mariachi band on this train now at 930 a.m. OK, I guess that's my morning commute. But then yeah. I just go back to reading my book. It's like it's not. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, I don't even <laughs> go and tell anybody like, wow, the most interesting thing happened on the train this morning. A mariachi band got like I'm I've lived in New York for like 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that is just like a, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's right. a six train that happens. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, I would not pay attention to, um, and also like also ki- teenagers especially do this on the New York subways where they just uh, travel between the cars while it's in motion just for fun or just because. Um, so yeah, that happens all the time. And I can tell you for sure, nobody like looks up and is like, Oh, something's about to happen. <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Also, if I'm running away from the ticket taker box bots, I'm not going to stop every car and turn around <laughs> and you know where they are. There's literally only one direction you can go in. It's a train. It's a train. <laughs> um, I love I do love the little moment at the beginning uh, of that sequence, though, where they're they're sitting down on the train and there's that big alien creature with the hairy mm. face. And uh, Pershing just can't stop staring at it for some reason, which also maybe maybe that has something to do with him being like so indoctrinated by the Empire. He's not used to seeing other sentient species casually around. Um, But Kane notices and is like, hey, you know, you can't be staring like that. So she plays it off by just looking at the guy and being Tong's days. Am I right? (laughs) Have you ever looked up the uh, Wikipedia entry for Tong's day? No, I kind of assumed it was like, like uh, I hate Mondays, a kind of thing. Yep. Um, oh, okay. 
Uh, it's very much that. There's also a Zell's Day. And I think there's like three, I think there's five days um, in the galactic calendar week. Um, Tong specifically refers to, it actually has Mandalorian history. Uh, it refers to a species that I believe lived on um, Concordia or Mandalore or something. And uh, the Beskad, which is a traditional Mandalorian sword, was based on an ancient Tong design. So this oh, little like cool. throwaway line actually has um, reference to like say historical significance of the Mandalorians. They're so important to the history of course, maybe Coruscant itself, or like I assume everybody in, in the Star Wars galaxy observes these agreed upon days of the week. Um, so like it's, I mean, that's not a small thing. Like our, our days of the week are named after like Roman gods basically. Right. Yes, um, so, so yeah, so I I love that like I don't know I just, I think that's like a really cool casual little bit of world building um, that you can it easily just breezes past it but if you're like me uh, you're gonna look it up on Wikipedia and, that's a good um, find yeah um, very cool connection yeah. uh, I'm gonna see real quick what are the Star Wars days of the week just because. Uh, um, Okay. Oh, th- you're gonna love this. Um, so there's uh, Tong's Day, Zell Day. Zell is another species, and um, I'm not gonna, I won't go too deep into it. But there's a Tong and Zell society at the like Coruscant University. That's uh, an analog to the real world um, Skull and Bones Society, like on okay. society. Uh, so that's a thing. So there's Tong's Day, Zell Day, Bendu Day. I'm sure that you know what that refers to. Bendu Day. Bendu. I'm blanking. Bendu was what um, George Lucas originally called the Jedi uh, back when it was like the force was the wills, W-H-I-L. And they were called Bendu, B-E-N-D-U. And that uh, has survived in two ways. Of course, Mace Windu, um, his name is derived from Bendu. And... uh, Bendu Day. There's a Bendu Day in the calendar. <laughs> That's some great trivia. I did not know that. Also, when you watch um, Rebels, uh, it's going to come up. I don't want to spoil the how, but um, Bendu is going to come up again when you watch Rebels. So uh, keep, an, keep an ear out for that. Uh, the, uh, so the other days of the week are Prime Day and Syntax Day. And I don't really have any commentary for either of those. But <laughs> well, that's just Prime. A. Um, okay. They they get to uh, they get to the the junkyard. They get to the derelict star destroyer, um, which is a cool set. Like everything about it is really really cool. It feels like the um, uh, the Jedi Jedi Outcast or not Jedi the Fallen Order game. You like I thought the same thing. It doesn't the first scene of that starts in like a a a shipyard and they're escaping, Mm -hmm. like sliding down the top of a derelict. Uh, starter store yeah i immediately thought of the video game yeah um and then uh uh-oh they hear some noises oh no are there people outside no don't worry about that it's nothing it is something alaya kane has called in uh the troops and they come and arrest um dr pershing um can you can you explain to me how that was how she was able to set that up I've been trying to wrap my head around it. The best theory I came up with is that she was 
in her rehabilitation program, she was like a, an officer or she, maybe she was there to root out, you know, noncompliance or something. And so she, you know, she's like a double agent. She worked with these new Republic officers to say, Hey, Dr. Pershing, he's no good. I'll set up a sting. You'll capture him. Um, we'll get the proof we need and then you can s- sort it out. That was kind of my take on it. Um, what about, what did you think? Well, so, okay. So, um, Sheev is, is Hitler, right? And then I guess, uh, um, uh, Vader is, I don't know, Goebbels or somebody. Um, and then that's, that's kind of where I run out of like not <laughs> significant Nazi names that I know off the top of my head. Um, but Moff Gideon is like somewhere in that echelon, right? He's somewhere in that like upper tier of like, not just a space Nazi, but a very significant uh, war criminal space Nazi. And Elia Kane worked directly for him on his ship. So how on earth do you put her in this rehabilitation program and put her in command of other troops with guns and power and like ships and things like that? How do you, how do you make such a huge mistake um, by, by Mm -hmm. trusting her that far? It's a good question. I mean, well, I'm trying to remember her role. She was like one, one, a dime a dozen communication officer, wasn't she? Like she didn't have a big role to play on the ship, did she? No. I'm trying to remember. But you're, but you're right. Those people would probably be, it's weird that the, it is weird that Pershing, this preeminent scientist who gave a TED talk was relegated to like data entry and archival. And then this person who was a communications officer became like a informant. Maybe she's an informant. Um, they don't. They don't. They don't do a great job explaining her role with the New Republic, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's there's implied that there's some sort of scene where she like goes to somebody important and is like, "Hey, um, this doctor guy, he's trying to continue his unethical experiments, and I have a way to entrap him." Um, and so, you know, the, here here's the plan. Um, but I just, man, I just don't. I it's it's just still shocking to me that like that it it resolves in her, him getting arrested and her just like kind of standing there like yep these are my boys they're and they're taking you in they're taking you downtown um i don't know i i personally if i was running the new republic i wouldn't trust uh, uh, uh goebbels uh, <laughs> or himmler or whoever the lower lieutenant or any of the people that served directly on their warship um with them uh, without having constant supervision, like I would never, I don't know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give her that long of a, a lead. Um, yeah. And it is gonna somehow come back and bite them in the ass later, but not in this episode. Well, it'll bite Doctor Pershing in the ass later uh, because they they bring him in and they strap him down to um, the six o two mitigator, the mind flare. Uh, or well, he calls it a mind flare, and this uh, um, uh, Mon Calamari, uh, <laughs> who I love his character, is just like, no, it's a six hundred two mitigator, and this isn't the Empire, son. We're not gonna, we're not gonna just erase your mind and and do unethical shit to you. Um, I've been through it myself, and found the experience quite pleasant. Um, I just, I loved this character so much. I loved his way of speaking. I loved his his casual again, like his casual ineptitude. 
Um, like we, I think it's important to see as frustrating it is, as it is, it's important to see examples of this so that it's easier to believe that the first order comes back into power. Yeah. Um, that, that guy cracked me up. Um, the son calling him son, uh, really <laughs> hit, brought it home for me, but you're right. He's so confident and casual in his ineptitude. It's, uh, yeah, that was uh, characters on screen for like 20 seconds and left a big impact on me. And he has a, a really fun moment where, um, Pershing is like yelling. He's like, no, she tricked me. She tricked me. It was a trap. And on the word trap, the Mon Calamari's head churns like almost to the camera. Um, I totally missed that. Even watching it twice. I'll, I'm going to have to go back and watch that. Oh, it's beautiful. It's, 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 it really like skirts the line of being like, is this too much? Is this too much of a nod and a wink? But I don't know. They, they, I think they pull it off. Um, I mean, Akbar, who doesn't love Akbar? So I, I, uh, yeah, that's that's a cool nod. In the uh, control room for this machine, uh, um, Elijah Kane is in there, and that guy. There's another guy in there with her. I think it's like a what species is he? Um, Twi'lek. Twi'lek, and and she and he's like, oh yeah, it's a shame, blah blah blah, and she's like, yeah, well, uh, he's like, oh well, time for lunch, I guess. Let's go. Uh, I guess this machine is automated so we can just like let it run and we'll come back later. And she's like, well, he was my friend. I want to watch this whole pro. I want to, I want to be here for him. And he's just like, all right, space Nazi. Cool. You can, you have, you have the, you have command of the full control room. Um, in general though, this, this machine, everything about it is like, even if the new Republic's intentions are good, this is horrific. Like, just the fact that they would use this machine at all and not just dis- dismantle it and make it illegal uh, is highly questionable. Yeah. Um, and there's no safe safety, so safeguard. Like it shouldn't even be able to go up to 10 or whatever. Like, right. Why did their dials protocol. go up that high? <laughs> yeah. It should have a, a limiter on it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's that, yeah, that's felt a little forced and um, staged. Although it did, it did deliver that really great sinister ending. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. It's um, some of that doesn't quite add up. Stepping out for lunch, letting her full full command of that. It, it's a it was a weird ending. Um, but uh, I guess that's the last week we're going to see of Doctor Pershing. Maybe not. I don't know, but. Uh, it's kind of the end of his story for now, I guess. Yeah, I man, it's it's like it's the most like horrific and existentially like torturous thing you could do to this person in particular. Like take away his mind because that's that's his entire thing. Like he is his personality is entirely based on like I study, I you know like I'm interested in medicine, I want to learn and like research and all of that. So to take his mind away from him is the most horrific thing you could do. Um, I caught, I got by, especially when they were putting that helmet on him, the vibes of uh, those um, Lobot and like the, the, the guys that we see at in cloud city. Uh, I think oh. there's a name for them, but, um, but they've literally been like, like had their brains removed and they're just humanoid human humans that are basically functioning as, as programmable droids, you know? Yeah, that that uh, mechanical implant around the back of their head. Yes, 
Yeah, there's a couple of those that actually, or at least one that shows up in um, Solo, a Star Wars story. Uh, they kind of briefly show at least one or two of those. Um, very, very creepy. Uh, <laughs> and just like, yeah, just the fact that the New Republic would be okay with even a diet version of that, even a, a lesser version of a machine that does something like that to a person is shocking and just shows the the evils of casual bureaucracy when you just let things slide like that. Yeah. You know what? I'm, um, I wouldn't say this conversation has converted me, but your, your take on this, your really expert breakdown of the like political ramifications of this episode have made me appreciate it more for sure. I, I still like throughout this episode, I was still channeling my inner Ian Malcolm and being like, uh, excuse me, now, eventually, you do plan to have the Mandalorian on your Mandalorian show, right? Uh, but, um, but yeah, I, I, it, this, this. What's your take on this? This episode would have been better in some kind of like anthology show, a Star Wars yeah. anthology show, where each episode was di- disconnected from the other, but it told an interesting story. That's probably where this belonged, not not in the Mandalorian necessarily. Yep, absolutely. This, this um, it's the wrong timeline, but this uh, felt very of a piece with Andor. Andor is kind of more of like a political drama, um, and it's excellent. I love everything about it. Um, but this felt like it had that tone and that style. Um, and I do, th- I do think we're getting a new show that's gonna um, that's gonna follow the 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 New Republic itself. Um, and I think I do. Th- I genuinely think like that's why this episode exists, and that's why they f- they lean so much into this part of the story. Is again, like I, I said this earlier, but it was like, oh my gosh, three hours ago now, <laughs> um, where this is going to fe- this episode looking back is going to feel like the Mandalore episode on Boba Fett, where it's it's vital to another show that's coming down the pipeline at some point. Um, yeah, there's the Mandalorian has kind of been a factory for backdoor pilots, right? We Ahsoka was reintroduced in season two. She's getting mm-hmm. her own show. Sounds like this might be a springboard for a new show. Boca, I'm I, I don't know what the plan is for Bo-Katan, but in in the mid part of this season, we'll get to this in the next podcast episode. Bo-Katan kind of became the star of the show, star, the star of the Mandalorian, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was in part to spin her off. So. I think there's a lot of truth there. This and that that is that is that's a dangerous game to play, right? You you spend an episode to introduce a character, to spin them off, to make a more profitable show, but does that episode does the art of that episode is it lessened because it was spent trying to set something else up instead of telling its own story? So we shall see. Mm. But I think uh yeah, it, it seems like based on what new shows Filoni is working on, the new movies they're working on, they're really expanding the universe mm-hmm. um so that's everything i have for that episode as well do you have any uh last thoughts about chapter 19 that's about it i think this was this and another episode later on were kind of the low points for me just because i really i wanted to follow along with mando and grogu and while i love the premise of this some of the acting and writing didn't didn't work for me but um but again i'd say having this conversation with you has has opened my eyes a bit on this episode and i i i like it more for what it represents than i did before we we jumped on this call 
Um, but in general, these first three episodes kind of in the in the in the decent range for me. Nothing that blew me away. Uh, well said. Um, all right, are you ready for Lou's big three? My my three biggest questions that I had watching uh, these three episodes. I am super well. I can never be ready for questions, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna do my best. All right. Uh, so I've hired my Galushian friend Ryan to sing the theme song. Ryan, hit it. Lose big three. It's you and me. We're gonna have fun with lose big three. Awesome, Ryan. Great job. That was fantastic. Um, I'm sorry that you got uh, uh, turned into a mecha spider and then stabbed in the chest by Bo Katan. Um, <laughs> lose big a bad three. Bad way to one. go. <laughs> In between lounging in a badass way on her throne, what else does Bo-Katan do with her day? That's a really good question. I've never seen her outside of the armor, so I'm assuming she goes to the bathroom in it, she sleeps in it, she jumps rope in it. Um, uh, what does she do? That throne room was completely absent of any kind of book or trinket. or um, yep. So... Um, you know what? She has that droid, right? I bet they play chess together. I bet like a, or not a back, uh, they, so back. I bet that there's like a back room in that now destroyed castle where they sit down. They, uh, she pours herself a nice space martini. He has a, a, a goblet of motor oil and, uh, they play a few rounds of Sabak. Yeah. Um, cause otherwise this, uh, a lot of Star Wars and a lot of this show specifically feels very like video game logic where like, okay, we have to go to Bo-Katan's castle to talk to Bo-Katan. So of course, when we show up there, she's going to be where we expect her to be like the best, the best visual set piece, which is lounging on her throne. Um, they, they pull this twice, like in the first two episodes <laughs> where, you know, somebody like first it's Mando, then it's Grogu pulling up. And both times she's just sitting there like, yeah, don't have anything else to do. Uh, so I'm just sitting here waiting, waiting for my guests to arrive and walk down this long hallway. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. Like, I don't even get the sense that she was in the middle of something and then like an alarm went off and like, oh, a ship's approaching. And she like runs up to the throne. Got to gotta get in my pose. Got to be there. Uh, in my tableau when he walks in. Um. Okay, so so Sabak, so she's an uh, expert Sabak player. Um, is okay. Um, we we talked about this at large, but I guess I condensed it into one of my big three questions: is is this show telling us that um, is is part of like the B plot of this show telling us that the New Republic is simply inept, and that's how the First Order um, came to be. Yeah, I well, it's definitely told in, in episode three, and then there's an addendum to that with the Shadow Council in the penultimate episode, I think. I would say, I, it's a partial yes. The, the show, this season felt kind of slipshod in its conception, right? So we, t we chatted via text that... It, felt like it was spinning its wheels at, at times mm -hmm. and i still feel that way although watching watching these first three episodes after watching the full season i see all these hints and these these seeds um 
with the cloning, for example, and how Gideon talks about cloning and, and combining the best attributes of different races and species. Um, I would say partially, not completely. So there's a lot of there's a lot of stories that are started but not finished in this season. So I would say it's a partial yes to your question. Okay. Do you do you have a problem with that knowing that in this era it's Leia Organa in charge of the New Republic? She's running the whole show and like there so many things are just like falling by the wayside under her command. Cuz that bo- that bothers me on a on a deep level. Oh, I didn't make that connection. But that is cuz she's so competent and she's so smart and like just has so much gumption, like, and personally went through uh, struggles to to bring down the empire. Um, that, like, I okay, so I can I can I can forgive that, like, she has to put systems in place um, to manage literally like a, a planet like Coruscant. There's trillions of people there, so you know she can't keep tabs on absolutely every bit of minutia. Um, but I don't know. I just I just expected more of <laughs> of General Leo Organa running this show. This might give you some comfort, um, and I can't speak about the man with complete confidence. But uh, Ulysses S. Grant, right, generally considered an amazing general, amazing mm-hmm. leader. His presidency was actually marked by a lot of um, uh, controversy because of. Um, what is the word I'm searching for? Grat, not grat, corruption. Uh, mm. His presidency was marked by a lot of corruption, not from him, but from the people he appointed. So basically, he was a very honorable person yeah. who made a lot of bad hiring decisions. And maybe one one general to another, General Grant and General Organa, maybe it was the same kind of situation. That's a really that's a really good analysis. I think I agree with you that like yeah, she's she's. She's wonderful. Nothing to take away from her, um, but she's not omnipotent and or nor omniscient. So you know, yeah. She, at, at a certain level, she just has to trust her subordinates to do the right thing, and and they are they they are definitely, as we see in this episode, slacking. <laughs> um, all right, lose big three number three. Uh, I'm keeping track of all of the um, the droids, the significant droids, and the significant dinosaur creatures that we see throughout this series and i want to take i want to like run these by you and let's say this was a droids versus star wars dinosaurs creatures cage match so on one side um we have the uh the therapy bot uh we have r5d4 (laughs) um we also have uh the dianoga turtle scarab or, or scarab thing um we have the we have ig11 um, and I'll, I'll, we'll say, we'll say half of IG-11, just the top half. Um, but I'm also going to throw in on their side, the protocol droid that, uh, d- dumped a statue on him. I'm going to put like, cause he's a strong contender. He's a quick um, thinker. I'm also going to give the droid side, the, uh, the two little cape droids that carry grief cargo's cape. Totally so fair. that's one team. The other team is the dinosaur turtle. Um, the ice, the ice gator from the pilot, uh, <laughs> that like grabs his ship before it like busts. Oh, it's like ice a, a walrus almost, right? Yeah. The ice walrus. Yeah. Um, and the mythosaur, which absolutely counts as a dinosaur. It has sore in its name. 
So I will, you can send me your hate mail, uh, listeners, but I, the mythosaur is a dinosaur. It's, it, I, I will die on that hill. Um, so who's winning this fight, Evan? We've got the, again, the protocol droid, the therapy bot, R5, IG-11, um, the Dianoga bot, and the cape bots versus giant dinosaur turtle, giant mythosaur, and really, really big ice walrus. I really, I would love, love to make a convincing case for the droids here because they are so <laughs> obviously the underdog. But the mythosaur would just have to roll over uh, and just and and completely flatten them uh, like so much aluminum foil. Uh, the <laughs> the grievous Dianoga type thing would maybe put up a fight, especially because it can like keep getting smaller and smaller. But um, yeah, got to go with the. Uh, team dinosaur on this one so space dinosaurs win this fight they do i think i agree with you i think i think they would stand more of a chance if it was ig11 at like full capacity um but yeah even even with the statue tipping protocol droid um i I, i'm also gonna hand it to the space dinosaurs he's the dark horse if there was uh, (laughs) a giant bust of someone bigger than the (laughs) mythosaur nearby maybe (laughs) uh awesome um so that was uh that was our coverage of the first part of season three of the mandalorian um so make sure that you are subscribed make sure that you uh leave us a review like us on all of the whatever um, podcast app you're listening on um and we will be back next week to talk about the Next three episodes, chapters uh, 20, 21, and 22. Um, so, Evan, anything anything uh, to say to the audience before we wrap up this week? No, no. This was a pleasure to talk about these episodes. Episode three has, like, there's so much to unpack, and I'm glad we had the, the time to do so. Excited about talking about some individual scenes in four, five, and six. Uh, six, I have a lot of thoughts about, and then super excited about the seven and eight, the, the third part of this podcast series, because uh, the penultimate episode, season seven, is probably my favorite of the season. So, a lot of, lot of, a uh, lot of material to to uh, to attack moving forward. All right, uh, so we will see you um, next uh, next Tongs Day, perhaps uh, for the next episode. Um, and uh, as we always say here on uh, on Robots vs. Dinosaurs, uh, sorry, pal, no chance cubes. Lerman, Lerman. Tongs days, am I right? Protocol droid for the win. I'll go put on the kettle. I was going to make espresso. Oh, you're leaving? Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs>